This is Tim Benal of BenalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 4. Before we dive into this week's program, let me do a shout-out and a congratulations once again to the U.S. of E's own Clan Denon for winning yet another prediction contest on the forum. This time around, it was the WrestleMania Pick'em Contest, and Clan Denon bested quite a field of participants, myself included, to take home the crown. Congratulations, Clandenon. I tip my hat to you, sir. Now that we've finished up that business, we can move on to this week's program, and we have got a real slobber knocker of esoteric discussion for you here this week, my friends. Our guest is the creator of the ultra-popular blog, The Graylian Report, Micah A. Hanks. He's going to join us here on the program for a nearly two-hour conversation that's going to cover a number of ufological and cryptozoological subjects. It is truly an esoteric jam session with the amazingly cool Micah A. Hanks. I didn't really know Micah very well before we sat down to do the interview, but after we had talked for so long there, I really grew to like him quite a bit. He is a great guy, and I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with the man behind the Graylian Report. Let's do a little rundown here of what we're going to be talking about in this wide-ranging paranormal discussion. We're going to talk about human-ape hybrids, subterranean civilizations, the shaver mystery, mole people, ghostly receptors, the UFO ghost connection, alternative explanations for the Travis Walton case, Edgar Mitchell, the Bigfoot body hoax of 2008, the diminishing public perception of UFOs, exopolitics, Presidents and UFOs, the bizarre bloop mystery of the deep sea, and tons and tons more. As you can see, we touch on a number of esoteric genres in this conversation, and we really cover a variety of fringe topics in the world of the paranormal. A lot of stories that fall through the cracks. Micah A. Hanks finds them, picks them up, dusts them off, puts his own little twist on them, and posts them at the Graylian Report. And that's what we're going to be discussing here tonight on the program. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Micah A. Hanks, allow me to give you some background information on him. Micah A. Hanks has researched all things strange since a very young age, beginning while he was still in grade school. Since that tender age of discovery, he has grown to work towards documenting the world's bizarre mysteries, having contributed articles and stories to Fate Magazine, Fortean Times, Mysteries Magazine, UFO Magazine, and many others. He's also had the pleasure of working with the Travel Channel for their Weird Travels TV program, as well as the History Channel's Guts and Bolts during investigations as an investigator with the Lemur Paranormal Research Team. His adventures have taken him to all kinds of amazing places, from snow-capped mountaintops in the middle of July, hiking through the Rockies of Montana in search of Bigfoot, to a haunted 19th century jail in historic Charleston, South Carolina. He studied martial artists in Chicago who performed the ancient art of the death touch, 
and while he was there, he also visited Resurrection Cemetery, famous location of Resurrection Mary, one of America's most enduring hauntings. He's trudged through the mountains of Cherokee, North Carolina, in search of Boojums, and what the Cherokee natives describe as the Woolly Ones. He stomped through the foothills of Tennessee in search of the southern skunk ape, and struck the hills in the heart of Amish country in search of Ohio's grass man. His website is www.gralianreport.com. Let me spell that for you. G-R-A-L-I-E-N report.com. Check it out. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on January 16th, 2009. Micah A. Hanks joins us for an esoteric jam session on BOA Audio Season 4. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. I'm very excited about this week's program here. We've got someone who I consider one of the fastest rising stars in the world of esoterica today. Definitely someone who is going to be very well known in the future amongst many people in the esoteric world. And I'm very excited to have a chance to bring him on the program here and showcase his research and his writings. He is Micah A. Hanks. The man behind the very popular and quickly growing in esteem and popularity website, GrillianReport.com, G-R-A-L-I-E-N, Report.com, that's all one word. And uh, aside from the outstanding blog, GrillianReport.com, he's written for Fate Magazine, 40 and Times, Mysteries Magazine, UFO Magazine, and many others. He also posts at the UFO Magazine blog. And he's worked with Travel Channel for the Weird Travels TV show and History Channel for the Guts and Bolts program. Micah, it's great to have you on the program. I'm really excited about exploring some of your research and your interests and introducing you to the BOA Audio audience. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Tim. And it's always a pleasure to, uh, to, to hear other researchers who are so enthusiastic about esoterica and all this strange stuff that we're going to no doubt talk about over the next little bit. Absolutely, absolutely. And as I said, I've been carefully studying your blog here. I really enjoy your writings. I really appreciate, too, that you're uh, part of the new breed of esoteric researchers, not just a specialization. You're multi, multidisciplinarian, if you will, uh, UFOs, cryptozoology, all kinds of other stuff. I appreciate and respect that, so we're, we fall on the same lines as far as uh, studying the esoteric goes. Uh, let's start out, I guess, you know, with the bio, the background, the basic stuff. Who is Micah A. Hanks? How did you get interested in the paranormal? Well, you know, I have a long history with the paranormal. Uh, it, it's kind of a funny story. Uh, that when I was probably, oh gosh, kindergarten, first grade, you know, just barely learning how to read, really, at that point, uh, my parents, maybe just to kind of to calm me down or something, because I was running around in the woods, and you know, I grew up around, uh, you know, Asheville, North Carolina, so it's very wooded, very beautiful, mountainous area down here in western North Carolina. But, uh, you know, to calm me down a little bit, I was handed books, and uh, some of the, the very earliest books and some of my favorites to this day are uh, Ivan Sanderson's Abominable Snowman, Legend Come to Life, and uh, Ray Fowler's UFOs, Interplanetary Visitors. Funny thing about that, I'm holding that that initial copy of that book, the old paperback that was uh, given to me so many years ago, and I've got that with me right now, you know. Maybe it's good luck. I don't know. I saw it lying here on the table. But, you know, those kinds of things kind of instilled in me early on a sense of curiosity. And then there are, of course, you know, a lot of neat ghost stories about this region and about other things as well. You know, that we're told around bonfires and things. I think that's part of just the culture, you know, the, the, the storytelling tradition, especially where I'm from. But, you know, as I got older, I began to kind of consider maybe there's some sort of a factual basis to some of this, as many researchers do. You hear urban legends, you hear stories about lights in the sky, you know, hairy humanoids and, and uh, you know, somewhat anthropomorphic-looking creatures, uh, you know, 
that are, that are seen throughout not just the continental United States, but virtually every continent uh, across the globe. And you start to think, you know, yes, indeed, there could be some sort of a basis uh, rooted in, in mankind's psyche that there is a, a call, you know, or, or a, a kind of a, a throwback maybe in our minds to ancient man, to our ancestors. Uh, and then again, there's also the physiological element there that you have to look at. Could there indeed be a great big hairy uh, humanoids, you know, bipedal humanoids that walk around, i.e. your Bigfoot, your Sasquatch, your Oma, your abominable snowman, Yaren, Yeti, all these different things. But it's so fascinating to me that there are so many different names, cultural interpretations, and it stems well beyond cryptozoology. I mean, it goes into the ufology as well, uh, you know, the study of poltergeist and spirit activity. Culturally, throughout the world, there are many names and there are many different interpretations based on society and culture. But it's pretty much the same phenomenon, and you'll get to a point where you start seeing these little parallels occur more and more. And finally, you have to just take a step back and look at the big picture and say, okay, what are we really looking at? And I guess that's where I'm kind of coming from. You know, that's my approach to this whole weird, wild uh, study of, uh, what do you call it, the paranormal esoterica? I like that term. There you go. Yeah, (laughs) so many names for it. Absolutely. So you're from North Carolina. You're from Ric Flair country, I guess, huh? Ric Flair country. That's right. Uh, Nature boy. That's right. Absolutely. I'm a huge Ric Flair fan, so I'm always happy to talk to somebody from North Kakalaki. Uh, (laughs) Now, uh, I did notice uh, throughout the blog here, you talk about a lot of, uh, now I use this in quotes, famous friends in the paranormal world. I was really (laughs) impressed by by some of the circles you've run in here in, in the world of esoterica, Nick Redfern. Uh, Joshua Warren, Jim Mars, all all good friends of yours. I guess talk a little bit about those guys and how maybe they've influenced your, you know, burgeoning uh, researching career. Well, you left one name off the list, and that's Tim Benall. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) He's also an influence and a buddy, yeah, from here on out. But uh, Nick Redfern, Jim Mars, uh, Joshua Warren, that's the unholy trio right there. Um, And I have had the uh, the esteemed honor and pleasure of getting to know all these guys extremely well. And uh, in various parts of uh, the Internet and, uh, of course, on the Grayling Report, my website, you'll see pictures all the time of Nick Redfern and I, (laughs) you know, throwing up uh, gang signs and crazy stuff in uh, in fancy (laughs) restaurants or You'll see Jim Mars and I singing folk songs together. Um, Joshua Warren, you know, Josh, the funny thing about Joshua Warren is that uh, he, although he didn't get me into the paranormal, when I was in my uh, my earliest uh, stages of really trying to branch out, travel, get into this stuff, uh, Joshua Warren was always an influence on me because he happens to live right here in my hometown of Asheville. Oh, nice. Yes, and Josh, you know, by the time I met him, you know, he was he had put together his Lemur team. It's kind of a an acronym that changed over time. And Lemur basically was a team that he put together, which of which now I'm a, an investigator, as a matter of fact. But uh, I think he actually formed the group back in the mid-1990s, and he's been going for a long, long, long time with this. And I first met him probably in 2001 or 2002, and uh, we met here in town. We talked about ghostly phenomenon, which is really what kind of uh, became Joshua's forte, but he's interested in all this stuff as well. And uh, after a good while of working together, we did a couple of paranormal conferences here in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, finally, he said, Mike, I'd like to get you more involved with the team. And he brought me on initially just kind of you know, doing some public relations and things. But he was interested in me because I had 
at the time an overwhelming interest in cryptozoology. And when we did those conferences together here in Asheville, uh, we would, uh, gosh, we had all kinds of fascinating guests. We had Phyllis Galdi from Fate Magazine come down and give a presentation one year. Uh, one of the reoccurring guests was Lauren Coleman, who we got to know early on, who's, you know, of course, goes without saying, you know, his influence on cryptozoology. Patrick Weege, who uh, runs The Anomalist, a oh, wonderful yeah, website great. right there. Yeah, but, uh, you know, and it's, and it's funny because when you come to the acronym of Lemur, I told you it's changed a little bit over the years, but Josh and I are right now, with all the contacts that we've made and all the friends we have, we're trying to put together a league of extraordinary gentlemen. And I notice myself every time every time I try and, and spell out the acronym for Lemurite, my tongue tries to take me in a different direction and say, League of Extraordinary Paranormal Gentlemen. This is this is what Josh is wanting to do right now, branch out and try and create something of a uh, of a network of all the best minds in the paranormal world these days. Uh he did the Dark Thirty Tour, which is something that he does kind of off and on. Okay, uh, yeah, it. yeah, I know all about the Dark Thirty tour. Right, yeah, the Dark Thirty. I guess he launched it in Kansas City either last year or the year before that. And he had uh, he had done a, a number of television programs where he had worked with Nick Redfern and Jim Mars, and those two guys he said just had a very special energy about them. And he said, you know what? If I do this Dark Thirty thing, there are no two gentlemen I'd much rather have than anyone else to come out and do this with me. And so. He and Redfern and uh, and Mars did a fairly successful run in Kansas City, brought it to Asheville. And with both those guys staying in town here for a while, I got to know Nick Redfern and Jim Mars. And we've all been very, very, very good friends for quite a while now. And as a matter of fact, every time I, I see uh, Nick Redfern, I tell him how many uh, margaritas I owe him because he's always putting so much good information out there, which, of course, helps others in the blogging community. And that's really what it is. The community, we all kind of come together. We work together to try and, you know, figure out all this weird stuff and really just to try and reach, uh, I guess, you know, new understandings of existing phenomenon, both natural and what we would deem unnatural, although I think we're getting very close to bridging the point between the two. For sure, and I totally agree about the cooperation amongst online folks. Uh, that's definitely needed, and I'm glad to see it's happening more and more yeah. often. This may have slipped by me during your bio background. I know you've been interested since childhood, uh, but how long have you been actively involved, I guess you could say, in the field? How long have you really, you know, when did you decide to, to sort of pursue this as more than, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are listening to the show who don't have blogs, who don't, you know, they're not actively putting stuff out there. They're just uh, consumers, if you will, for lack of a better term. But, uh, but you and I, of course, you know, we're producing stuff and putting it out there. How long have you been in that realm? Uh, like I mentioned, I've been interested since I was very young. But when it comes to actually trying to document, uh, chronicle this kind of phenomenon and then make it available, uh, you know, and, and of course these days it's it's phenomenal the the amount of uh, uh, information that you can publish, you know, really without any kind of license or anything like that. You don't have to have a, a medium other than just being able to you know navigate the internet and know how to use a computer to a fair uh, fairly good degree. But uh, so far as when it comes to really trying to put things on, you know, well, not just on the web, but just, you know, publishing in general. Uh, I know my first article probably appeared in Fate Magazine in 2004. Okay. And it's been about that time that I really was able to start kind of getting my name out there and doing things. Now, prior to that, I may have done some television work, and that was through Lemur. And, uh, and at this point, I'd like to take a brief opportunity to, to clarify what that does stand for, because if I keep mentioning Lemur, uh, you know, people may begin to wonder about that. This is Joshua Warren's paranormal research unit um it's it's something that he's wanted to do for a long time he's been you know doing it for quite a while and it stands for league of energy materialization and unexplained phenomenon research 
like I said, that acronym has changed some over time because, you know, you're always changing what you're doing. But that was an early medium also for me to get some of my research out there. And uh, and that probably began with television programs like uh, Weird Travels that aired on Travel Channel mm-hmm. and uh, the Guts and Bolts program, which you had mentioned in the uh, in earlier bio there, which is a fascinating uh, program that History Channel did where they literally looked at the history of ghost hunting. And they had the lemur team, along with Joshua and I, going out and actually performing a ghost hunt, and they dissected everything that went about. So I, I've been very, I guess, privileged, <laughs> I want to say, to work with a group of you know individuals, an ever-changing group of individuals, that includes Nick Redfern, Jim Mars, Joshua Warren, and some of these names, where I'm thrust into different capacities, you know, playing different roles. I always consider myself the chronicler, you know, the person who's writing about it the most. And uh, with, with, you know, well, <laughs> when you're when you're comparing yourself to people like Nick Redfern, as much as he writes, that, that can be quite a, a statement. But I certainly aspire to try and be that person. And I'd say that that's probably been all within the last five years for my, my own research. Okay. Let's sort of dive into some of the stuff you've discussed and researched and posted about at the Grillian Report. And the first one I want to talk to you about that's a recurring theme at your blog is this human-ape hybridization. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and call it a little bit of an obsession of yours. It's definitely something that you find uh, particularly interesting. And uh, one that I, I will say, too, before we dive into the human-ape hybridization, that uh, one of the great things about Grelian Report is that you do talk about and uh, dissect and research and post on a lot of stories that uh, sort of slip through the cracks of Esoterico or aren't really you know, the ones that are beaten to death, which is what a lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about here today, a lot of the more obscure stories. So I take my hat off to you for that. I enjoyed digging into your blog and and finding out about a lot of these strange stories. And as I said, the first one here I want to talk to you about is this human-ape hybridization that's come up again and again at the Grillian Report. Right. Uh, You know, gosh, tracing back in my own mind where my interest began with that, I'm not 100% sure but obviously, you know, as I've mentioned, growing up with interest in things like Bigfoot. And, and, and let me just go ahead and preface all this by saying that when it comes to something like Bigfoot, um, it's, it's a little hard to swallow. It really is. The, the whole notion of there being a large, bipedal ape, uh, you know, walking around out there, you know, just within reach of, of the fringes of humanity and yet, you know, no conclusive evidence. That, well, there has been some. But, uh, you know, very little conclusive evidence, uh, you know, consistently has, you know, ever been brought forth to the, uh, to the scientific forefront of this kind of study. Uh, so that being said, I, you know, I'm 50-50. I'm like Jane Goodall. I want to be a romantic about things. I want to say that there is certainly a possibility, and I'll never rule that out, but, but I certainly lean towards skepticism. And, and, you know, and, and saying that, you know, once again, I'm not ruling it out completely, but, I, I, you know, you have to be kind of – you have to find a point from which you can kind of ground yourself. Mm-hmm. And then from there, <laughs> then from there, if you get your hopes let down, it doesn't – you know, it's not as uh, far a drop, I guess, if you have to fall. So <laughs> yeah. that's at least one way to look at it. So point being, you know, I'm a romantic. I'd like to believe that there's a Bigfoot, but, uh, but I'm not convinced. I haven't seen evidence that has convinced me yet. Now, that being said – uh, when you're trying to look for a tangible scientific uh, point of reference, you know, a, uh, a physical handle on all this strange phenomenon, you know, that seems to sort of bridge, you know, modern humanity as we know it and, you know, possible ape ancestors. The humanity is a natural bridge, if you will, that, uh, that works extremely well. We've been, you know, as, as a species, we've been fascinated with the notion of a missing link, and you see it in things like Planet of the Apes, you know. This has just been something that's been a cultural phenomenon in general. 
And there was a great article that appeared in Fate Magazine a few years ago that was by an author, another friend of mine, Paul Stonehill uh, from California. And Paul Stonehill did this fascinating article about human-ape hybrids and talked about some of the uh, the experimentation that was done. I know some of, uh, you know, in the modern scientific era, you know, some of this stuff dates back as early as 1910 or so when, uh, you know, Ilya Ivanovich Ivanov uh, had presented, I think, to the World Congress of Zoologists in Austria uh, what he described as a possibility that you know humans and apes could interbreed and produce a living offspring, but we didn't know at that time, and allegedly we don't know to this day, at least publicly we don't know to this day whether or not it could happen. You know, we have things like mules, we have ligers, uh, where we have uh, you know interbreeding between closely related species, and they generally produce a a uh, sterile offspring, but we haven't we haven't you know at least you know in the open uh, tried the same thing between orangutans or chimpanzees and humans. But this certainly was an idea that uh, the Soviets had began to toy with by you know like I said as early as 1910. I think around 1924 Ivanov had begun to uh, obtain permission from the uh, Pasteur Institute in Paris to try and start doing experimental uh, studies. Uh, along these lines, and he had, you know, done numerous experiments where he had tried to, you know, I, well, I think it began with he tried to inseminate chimpanzees, female chimpanzees, with human male sperm, and then later, of course, and none, none of these uh, tests were successful, but later uh, he eventually actually found uh, female human uh, receptors, if you will, who were willing to, uh, to, you know, to undergo these studies. And they were to be inseminated with, with, with male chimpanzee sperm. But around that time, uh, he basically uh, succumbed to political oppression and things along those lines. And when I say oppression, you know, I don't want to give the, 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 uh, the interpretation that I'm saying what he was doing was maybe good or, or ethical. I, I certainly have mixed feelings about, you know, inseminating women with chimpanzee sperm. That's not exactly a, In fact, I think Joseph Mengele, uh, during the, uh, the, during the Nazi regime of Germany had actually uh, you know, tortured uh, is, is part of the psychological torture that they use with some of the, uh, the the captives in the concentration camps. He would actually tell women that they had been, you know, during experiments he had been conducting, they had been inseminated with, with you know, uh, semen from chimpanzees and things. So it's not exactly a, a very fun topic for people to deal with, and that's the big issue why uh, today we still don't have any kind of definitive answer as to whether or not a humanzee or a human, you know, a human-ape hybrid, those are two popular terms for the uh, phenomenon. We don't know for certain if this sort of a thing could actually indeed biologically exist because there are so many uh, clinical issues, there are so many ethical issues. And right now, as I understand, a lot of people, I get a lot of emails from Grayling Report readers and other people who read the blog, you know, for uh, you know, other bloggers for that matter, and, and lots of people have, have been saying that they're getting to be overseas, not here in the U.S. just yet, but overseas in various countries, there are loopholes and even, uh, you know, strictly written clauses, you know, in, in, in existing laws and new laws that are coming about, which may allow just enough elbow room for this kind of experimentation to be tested. Whether or not it's ethical, it could be done legally. And if that is the case, you know, very soon we may begin to see, uh, you know, the first signs of a real-life planet of the apes. I don't know. Uh, you know, hopefully it would never get to that point, you know, but that seems to be uh, mankind's general fear with regard to robots or, you know, this, this notion of a humanity. It's always some sort of a proto-humanity that comes from the fringes. We initially as humans are, you know, in control of this, of this, this proto-humanity that we create, whether it be robots, whether it be 
you know, chimpanzees and, and, and human-ape hybrids, would it be, you know, any, anything along those lines. And in science fiction, you know, these things always rise up and overtake humanity. And I think that that's a residual fear that people have of this kind of experimentation. What if it got out of hand? And there are so many different paths that that could take and different directions that that could take that could be dangerous, that could be, you know, God knows what. Yeah. So, but that's, that's you know, I think what interests me about uh, the, the notion of a human-ape hybrid is that there are so many variables, so many questions, virtually none of them answered. And right now it's just something that lingers in the back of our minds. What if? Yeah, what if? yeah. And I kind of feel like uh, I agree with you that this has been sort of a thread that's lingered for such a long time in, in, the, in the human mind that in my own cynical sort of way, I have a feeling that the human race won't rest until it actually accomplishes this task of, of some kind of human ape hybridization. But maybe that's just because I'm paranoid or something. But it seems kind of like that in a way. And as genetics get further and further along the line, it's only going to be a matter of time before someone does it. Well, you know, they say curiosity killed the cat. So I guess we may find out the hard way. Now, <laughs> I did see the uh, – there was a very good – I'm sure you saw it too – Monster Quest episode on the human ape connection there. I don't know. Did you see that? I did. Monster Quest is by far one of my favorite programs on television today, and I think that they spent a good deal of time on that particular program discussing Oliver, and Oliver was a chimp that uh, – I don't remember where he initially came from. I know he ended up at a primate research institute in Texas, and uh, I think that really it's pretty conclusive that Oliver – Although he walked upright, uh, he had kind of bluish eyes. He he lacked a lot of the facial hair that a, a typical male chimpanzee his age would have had. Uh, Oliver was striking. I mean, you, you, you're not used to seeing a, uh, a chimpanzee or any other ape, for that matter, you know, typically walking upright all the time like humans do. But Oliver did all these things, and he was quite the enigma, especially during the 1970s and 80s on, on television programs. But he disappeared for several years, and as I understand, he's still alive, but very old. At this, uh, at this primate research institute in uh, Texas. But after extensive genetic testing, I don't think that uh, Oliver was anything but a chimp. And I've heard, you know, different, uh, actually, who was it I was talking to about this the other night? I think I'd, uh, there, was, there was someone, uh, a famous writer that we had uh, had on Joshua Warren's radio program, Speaking of Strange, and I'd asked them about the possibility of human-ape hybrids, and this, uh, this individual had told me that they'd actually been to visit uh, this research institute and had seen um, Oliver, and they had told me that Oliver had some sort of a genetic issue in his hips that made it uncomfortable for him to walk, you know, as a knuckle walker like other chimps, and so he walked upright and learned that way. Huh. Other reports I'd heard also just said that he had been a carnival uh, chimp and basically had been trained to walk that way. Uh, whatever the case, though, I don't think he was anything more than a chimpanzee, but that was, I know, uh, an element that played into that particular episode, if I'm thinking of the same television program, and it's still fascinating, you know. If anything, we look at Oliver and we see, once again, a glimpse of what it might be like, what we might expect if we indeed were to be exposed to a real-life human-ape hybrid. Part of the thrill of Esoterica is those brief glimpses, like uh, over the summer with the, with the Bigfoot hoax, just for that brief period where it looked like it was the... It was the breakthrough moment. Uh, sometimes you get those brief glimpses, and they're, and they're kind of like what keeps you going in this crazy uh, field. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The next big thing I want to talk to you about that comes up again a lot in the Gralian Report is uh, your your overwhelming fear of subterranean monsters, subterranean people, <laughs> the concept of, uh, of you know, this, this, this potential – 
subterranean race that may be out there or has been rumored for a very long time and is part of the, the global consciousness, if you will. Whether it's true or not, it is part of the global consciousness, and, and we see it come up again and again in pop culture and in urban legends and myths and, and what have you. So I guess talk a little bit about you know subterranean monsters, subterranean people, your interest in that whole subject, and, and what you think about that. Yeah, it's fascinating. Every Everybody has something that just really causes their you know their skin to crawl it makes them tingle and uh yeah subterranean uh especially when i when i talk about proto-humanoids uh the notion of subterranean uh, entities has always been something that creeps me out for a multitude of reasons uh it's so funny i talked to tim beckley about this one night and he said you need to join this forum you need to join this forum i'm a member of it's called the shaver mystery forum and at that time i didn't know much about the Shaver Mystery, uh, which uh, back I think it was the, uh, the 1940s, late 1940s, there had been a, a series of, of, of kind of, uh, well, I guess there were stories, but they were more kind of like dialogues that were issued to uh, this uh, this gentleman who was, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember the name, but it was the uh, the editor of one of the popular sci-fi magazines at the time, and he uh, he had essentially found these these recitations, these 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 warnings that had been issued by this guy, this Shaver fellow. Mm-hmm. Um, so interesting, and I think actually it was Ray Palmer that was the editor uh, who had re- uh, received these from this Mr. Shaver. And uh, Shaver's uh, dialogues indicated that there was a subterranean race beneath the earth. They were evil, and they were called the Darrows. And these Darrows controlled, to some degree, they manipulated mankind from below the earth. And, and they were very evil. They had some degree of psychic ability and things like that, and they also had very advanced technology. Well, uh, Palmer found this whole thing so fascinating that he decided to rewrite these dialogues written by Shaver, and he and he issued them as stories uh, that appeared uh, in the pulp magazines there during the late 1940s. And it was a fascinating subculture built around this quote-unquote Shaver mystery because people started to write back to Palmer, and they said, you know, I know that this is all supposed to be fiction, but I'll tell you a true story that happened to me. And people started, you know, recounting experiences with actual uh, evil entities. Some of them uh, subhuman, proto-human, whatever you want to call them, but human-like, but more monstrous entities that they had indeed encountered uh, in various, uh, you know, situations. Especially, you know, near cave openings or in sub-basements beneath old old buildings. You know, that might have access to, you know caves and caverns and things along those lines and it's a, a fascinating subject because uh you know i've not been exposed to all that and then a couple of years ago i went to the uh, the theater with my girlfriend at, uh, at the time and we uh, we saw a film called the descent and uh the descent is a film based on a book by a fellow named jeff long who uh basically put together this whole notion of there being two branches of humanity, and one of them was a proto-human branch that literally went underground, and then there are the day dwellers, you know, the, the above-ground people, ourselves. And in his book, there's a very elaborate system of caves that, that literally travels underneath the Atlantic Ocean, and uh, and it's accessible from various points. One such, uh, you know, access point is somewhere in the uh, the Himalayan mountains, and I believe that the book opens with a, uh, a group of experienced hikers taking some lesser experienced hikers on a sort of a guided hike, and they get trapped in a snowstorm, so they take shelter in this cave. Well, as the snow continues to fall, they get trapped in the cave, and they have no choice but to try and head down into the cave and find another entrance or exit on the other side of the mountain. And before they can get back out of this cave system, they all get picked off by creatures. Oh, boy. Um, 
So that's the notion of the, of the of the descent. Now the film was a lot different. It was a good film, but the film was far different. But even still, you know, you've got these creepy, almost vampiric, cannibal uh, proto-humans that live in this cave system, and they're just you know, eating and devouring and killing these girls. Typical horror film. But when you hear stories uh, that people tell, you know, along the lines of the old Shaver mystery, and you know, I tend to think that that's more sensationalism than anything. But there are stories of other things, not just proto-humans, but other kinds of monsters and creatures uh, that people have said indeed uh, could inhabit subterranean caverns and things below the earth. Uh, you, when you look at popular ufology, there's this notion of underground bases. And it, it has many extensions uh, like that, that 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 delve into different various branches of esoterica and phenomenology. If you want to use a really weird term, <laughs> um, and, and and you know you hear about these these stories about underground bases, reptilians, and creatures like that, uh, and you know and very advanced systems of subterranean. Uh, you know, accommodations of some sort. You know, we don't know what they are, but you know, these, you hear about these things from time to time in archaeological digs where they find very advanced subterranean dwelling places that seem to just lead off into un, you know unforeseen depths of the earth. And you know, these kinds of things don't come to light very often. They aren't talked about very much by mainstream science. But there, there certainly seems to be, like you kind of you know hinted at, there's a subculture of of stories and of hints and whispers of things. You know that might exist underground. I have to I have to mention somebody who's done a great bit of work, uh, you know, with regard to this sort of thing, and it's Brad Steiger. Uh, he wrote the book Monsters Among Us years ago. That was totally a different, uh, you know, a total different perception of monsters and creatures. You know, I couldn't even say that that book took a cryptozoological approach because typically when we're talking about cryptozoology, we instantly connotate Bigfoot. We instantly, you know, want to kind of draw the Loch Ness monster and these these archetypical cryptid creatures into it. And Steiger, who I've known for years, you know, I call him a mentor, and Brad has always been so kind and sharing with me. His books take such a different approach to this sort of study. And there's a, a chapter, in fact, in his book Monsters Among Us, and it deals with this, and it's actually called uh, Monsters from the Hollow Earth. And I'd recommend that to anybody. If you want to get a really interesting perspective of what exactly could exist below us that we are completely unaware of at present, well, maybe not completely, but for the most part unaware of, I'd recommend Monsters Among Us by Brad Steiger. There's that chapter, and you'd enjoy the rest of the book also. But but that right there encapsulates my whole notion of what these things might be. You know, are they humans like us? Are they human-like but something different? Are they aliens? We don't know. But we have some sort of a notion that they might be there. Yeah, absolutely. Now, do you think that that's just something that maybe has carried on from previous generations, I guess you could say, if people maybe, uh, you know, maybe uh, the human race escaped into the underground uh, during one of the great catastrophes, and since then it's become, you know, part of uh, the fabric of the human mind, sort of like the Great Flood idea? Or do you think that uh, maybe there is still some race of people, uh, you know, existing in, in the underground? I think it's difficult to really say uh, conclusively. I yeah. <laughs> think that there are people who live underground in caves. Now, I mean, there have been instances, uh, you know, there, there was a film, actually, I think it was called Dark Days, and it was a, uh, it was an independent film made by a guy where he went, uh, I believe it was underneath New York, and there have been television programs about all this. How oh, yeah, the mole people. The mole people, exactly. Beneath the various, uh, you, know, uh, you know, levels and sub-levels of the uh, train system there, I guess it's the subway system there mm -hmm. beneath New York, uh, there are, you know, a lot of portions of that subway system, you know, that go way down underground, but they're not, you know, typically in use any longer. 
but these areas are inhabited by what they call the mole people, which are just people like you and I. Well, maybe not quite like you and I. I can imagine living underground most of my time. But these folks, you know, in the throes of desperation, you know, have retreated underground because they can live there peacefully. Uh, people don't come down there and bother them very much. And this fellow put together this film, a documentary about spending time living down there with these people and learning their way of life. And it's amazing what they've done. They've built entire houses. They've rigged up electricity down there, you know, and all kinds of things. And it's fascinating because if it could happen there, and granted that's, you know, that's kind of a manufactured cavern or a manufactured underground dwelling situation. But nonetheless, it's not something that they went down there and dug themselves. It was something that these individuals had access to, and they turned it into a dwelling because, you know, of sheer necessity. Could it have happened elsewhere? Could it still be happening elsewhere? And could people be using, you know, natural cave systems, caverns, and things like that below the earth as dwelling places? I think it's obviously feasible, but I think it's a little difficult whether or not we could ascertain these are anything but just people who have done this, you know, out of either desperation or necessity or even desire. You know, some people just like being underground in caves. And uh, Joshua Warren and I did an investigation of a cave system, allegedly haunted cave system. I saw no ghosts myself, but it was a, a cave system near uh, Johnson. I guess it was actually a little east of Johnson City, Tennessee. Magnificent cavern. And you go down there, and they said that all year round in these cave systems beneath Tennessee, no matter how cold or hot it is upstairs, it's always a constant, you know, 60 or so degrees underneath there in those caves. And I could find it, and, you know, after your fashion, being kind of comfortable living in a cave. <laughs> That's the quotable part of the interview we were looking for. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's a book, uh, Mole People. I don't know. I forget the name of the the author. It was a, a lady author uh, that, that uh, it's on my desk across the room here. I can't see it from here, but uh, it's a great book, Mole People. Uh, about her time spent studying the underground folks in New York. And, you know, it comes to make you think that, if these people of this contemporary time moved underground, then maybe 100 years ago or 200 years ago or something, maybe some group of people moved underground and they've been regenerating, you know, and, and successive generations have existed underground and, you know, they're kind of split off from the human race. That's always possible, too. It's plausible, yeah. It's, it's not something that you can easily discount, you know. It may be unlikely, but unlikely doesn't mean no. Never say never. Exactly, because if there's people nowadays that feel compelled to move underground, maybe there were people like that a long time ago, too, and now they've they've been down there for generations. So, uh, you know. The reason why they... Yeah, there's a reason why they called the ancestors cavemen. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, there you go. I never even thought about it like that. One thing I want to talk to you about also here is uh, one of your Fate Magazine articles. Uh, I don't have the specific date on that, but I know you posted about it uh, in April of this past year at your website, and that's the sort of ghost-UFO connection, humans as sort of receptors to paranormal phenomenon. I definitely agree with that in the sense that it seems like there are people who are just way in tune to this sort of thing that can pick up a whole bunch of different stuff. You know, they'll see a UFO and they'll have a ghost sighting and they'll see a Bigfoot. It's totally unfair to people like me who haven't seen anything. But it's, <laughs> you and I both. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it seems like there are some people who are just receptors to the whole thing, and, and I think that's what you explored in the Fate Magazine article. But sort of lay it out here a little bit for the listeners who haven't had a chance to read that yet. Yes, uh, the article was Ghostly Receptors, and I wish, you know, when you have a great idea like that, a ghostly receptor, I coined the term, uh, you know, there was a more uh, technical term that uh, the Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Bearden, the fellow who does the energy research into EMGs, electromagnetic generators and things, he, he used the term back in the 1980s uh, that I always liked. It was scalar interferometry, and he said that a human who operates on a psychic level of, of, uh, of, of brain function could be called a natural 
scalar interferometer, and I thought, wow, that's really neat. So I guess the layman's term I came up for that is a ghostly receptor, ghostly, uh, you know, pertaining to any kind of strange phenomenon. And then a receptor, of course, you know, we humans being biological receptors for ghostly or paranormal phenomena. And the whole notion behind the article actually stemmed from a conversation I had with a gentleman who, who goes by the enigmatic name of Mobius. And if you, if you notice on the About page on the Grailian Report, I list a handful of individuals who are regular contributors and, and just, you know, friends of the Grailian Report. Nick Redfern is one, Joshua Warren is one, also Christopher McCollum and Marvin Bishop, my buddy down south. Um, but then there's Mobius and Will Beckwith also. I have to name Will Beckwith, another good friend. But Mobius is a fellow, uh, he is actually a, a, an engineer by trade, and I think he, you know, he dabbles in that sort of thing now. He hasn't actually worked in the engineering field for years, but Mobius always has a lot of really fascinating insights with regard, especially to ufology. And he and I have begun this conversation back and forth talking about the notion of a tulpa. And tulpoidal phenomenon uh, could best be described by the, uh, the way that the, uh, I guess some of the Himalayans and also the uh, Tibetan monks um, describe this this um, this stage where when when a person you know who's reaching or or at, you know ascending the ladder so to speak the spiritual ladder toward enlightenment in the final stages of their training they could focus and they could pray so intently to a particular deity in which they wished to receive instruction from and as they did this they would eventually be able to manifest physically a physical representation of this deity. And this physical manifestation would then, you know, in the physical sense, lead the uh, the young practitioner of the mystic arts into the final stages toward enlightenment. And the term for this kind of a physical manifestation, as I stated, was a tulpa, mm -hmm. T-U-L-P-A. And so we look at a tulpa and the, the concept of a human, you know, an average Joe just like you or I, learning to focus our mental capacity uh, so intently that we might be capable of creating a physical manifestation of some some sort. And suddenly, you have a different kind of perspective that you can apply to almost any strange paranormal phenomena, whether it be Bigfoot, UFOs, ghostly phenomenon. And what this has to do with, in my mind, is, and, and granted, you know, once again, I'm not the first person who's ever talked about this. I think uh, Lauren Coleman and Jerome Clark wrote a book called, uh, I believe it was The Unidentified, back in the mid-1970s, where they kind of, you know, they touched on this sort of a subject, that there was a mass consciousness that produced, quote-unquote, thought projections. Mm -hmm. uh, and then before them, John Keel in the famous, the classic book, Mothman Prophecies, which everyone listening to this should have read by now, and if you haven't, go get it. But John Keel's Mothman Prophecies uh, actually mentions the term tulpa. And early in the book, he gives a concise description and definition of a tulpa and how tulpa phenomenon might interplay with, with various other forms of phenomenological, uh, you know, different kinds of, I mean, just any kind of activity, whether it be ghostly, UFO, cryptid. And, and as you can see, as evidenced by a creature like the Mothman, UFOs were seen all around Point Pleasant around the time that, that, that those initial sightings took place. Uh, in addition to the Mothman creature, you know, being interpreted as a cryptozoological entity, uh, there are those like Keel who kind of straddle the fence between cryptozoology and demonology and would look at that as almost more of an interdimensional phenomenon, that this thing was some sort of an alien but didn't travel here in a spaceship, that he was able to sort of phase shift back and forth between our realm and another dimension. So there's so many different 
explanations as to how all this stuff can go. And when you start trying to, you know, apply science and logic and reason, I'm not saying that it can't be done, but I'll certainly say that uh, right now humanity's present perception and understanding of the laws of nature around us are very incomplete. Uh, you know, I, I, I hesitate to say we've even scratched the surface of what's really going on. And I think that scientifically all things have an explanation. But with our limited perspective, it's impossible for us to apply what we know and reasonably define scientifically all that goes on around us. And then you come across questions based on that sort of thinking, like when you see a ghost, well, first of all, why do certain people claim to see ghosts, claim to be, quote, unquote, touched when they go into a haunted house? Why do people have all these experiences? They hear ghost whispers and things. And then there's guys, Tim, like you and I, who say we've never seen a ghost, never seen a UFO, never seen a Bigfoot, never been touched, never heard voices, never had a psychic dream, psychic thought. You know, I must be the lamest guy in the whole world because I'm the one that's writing about all this stuff, and I've never had anything happen. You know, I'm just waiting for it. I'm, I'm standing here looking out the window waiting for, for, you know, for Bigfoot to climb down from a tree or for a UFO to appear. Never had it happen. I don't discount that, but I do wonder why certain people seem to be more prone to having these sorts of experiences, while others of us tend to just have nothing happen. Yeah. And it's such a strange uh, paradox in that it seems that certain people are receptors to this sort of phenomenon, and others, you know, don't seem to have anything at all happen. And it could be that certain individuals maybe can, quote-unquote, tune their minds you know, and that they can kind of find a way to perceive these sorts of things and train themselves psychically or otherwise. Or it could be, indeed, that certain individuals, based on their perception of reality, are able to have an, a relationship with the environment around them in a way that literally affects what they see. And their notions, I mean, it's so funny because Einstein talks about relativity, you know, but I think that if anything... <laughs> What What is relative? What is the point of reference that, that all is to be relative to? We, everyone's so different. I look at people sometimes, and I wonder truly if, people, if, we, if we see the same color. I wonder <laughs> if I look like a great big goblin to somebody sitting across the table from me at dinner. You know, I mean, it, it's just so funny because we don't really understand from person to person what human perception is. We do know, however, that everyone perceives everything around them so differently, which brings us back to this tulpa phenomenon. If indeed certain people are able to use their minds and their senses to create paranormal activity, then once again, it appears that it's a subjective thing. What we look for in the paranormal studies, of course, is some sort of objective ability to, you know, to quantify and to record these sorts of things. But then, you know, you've got books like Conjuring Philip where people claim that they decide, we're going to try and create a ghost. We're going to see if we can focus our energies and our minds and create paranormal activity. And they allegedly were able to do that in that study where these, uh, these individuals, these researchers, said we're going to manifest a poltergeist or a ghost, and we're going to see how many of us are able to perceive phenomena. And many of the people who were participating in the study uh, were able to witness bizarre ghost-like or ghostly phenomena. You know? And it's really a strange thing because <laughs> it's almost like uh, Lyle Watson, who wrote Supernature and some of those fascinating books uh, back in the uh, 1980s, uh, he talked about women who, when they lived together in groups, often um, would begin to align various, you know, uh, you know, physiological functions. In fact, you know, their uh, their monthly cycle, their menstrual cycle, would actually align, and and they would become suddenly kind of you know operating on a similar body clock. And it's funny because when people get into these situations together, 
and they begin to operate and act as one, they begin to experience a lot of the same sorts of phenomena. You hear about couples who have some sort of a psychic link, and it's that same sort of a thing. Now, that kind of all has, I guess, loosely to do with ghostly activity, but the whole notion of the ghostly receptors article was to try and bridge that ghostly activity with UFOs. But what's really funny is, once again, people talk about, you know, I was filming this thing, I saw this UFO, and all of a sudden, as soon as I turn my camera on it, the camera cuts off. Yeah. Or people say that I'm watching and as I'm watching this UFO, I'm literally seeing the thing start to, you know, pulsate, and it's almost as though it's acting uh, on a level that seems to be conding to what I'm thinking. Yeah. And it's just fascinating because it does seem that almost any kind of paranormal phenomenon, whatever it is, if you if you dig deep enough, you'll find reports where people say that it's an interactive experience on one level or another. And if we take into consideration this notion of tulpas and people being able to create paranormal phenomena, at very least, if a UFO, for instance, isn't something that we're projecting, a thought projection from within our own psyche, at very least, could they be some sort of a phenomenon that is able to kind of intercept our thoughts, appear in some form or fashion as we would imagine them appearing, and, and literally create a subjective but nonetheless an interactive experience in which we perceive phenomenon that we might perceive. I mean, it may be there, but we might perceive this completely differently from others around us. Absolutely, yeah. That would kind of tie into the idea that how the UFO uh, enigma has changed so much over the years and sort of applied itself to what people would expect a UFO to look like. You know, how they had the right. airships in the, in the late 1800s and then, you know, it was sort of... Uh, cigar shapes in, in the mid-1900s and, and recently, you know, sort of black triangle shapes. So it seems like, you know, the UFO changes to reflect what people expect it to look like. Yeah, it's like a generational thing too, Tim. You know, you notice that, uh, like you said, flying saucer was the term that was coined back in 47, you know, with Ken, Kenneth Arnold. And then beyond that, they began to look more and more like the, the popular triangles of today. But from time to time, we get these UFO reports where they're just completely kind of amorphous, glowing blobs that change color. Like in Frank Longo's film, Capturing the Light, uh, you know, you see these these strange, I mean, what, what do you call those? These same sorts of things were uh, videotaped by people down there during the Stephenville flap earlier last year. And um, it's so funny because you ask somebody, draw a picture of a UFO, well, what do you draw? You're going to get 12 different interpretations or more of what a UFO is supposed to be. So do these things appear as we would expect them to appear, or are there literally just so many different variants, different uh, types of craft from different species across the universe or wherever uh, visiting Earth that we're just seeing so many different phenomenon that we can't categorize and quantify it? You know, we, we really don't know what's going on. That's the bottom line. You know, we can try and, and define and describe this stuff as, as much as we like, but we really, bottom line, we don't know what's going on. And so that's why guys like you and I discuss this sort of stuff. <laughs> We're all in a, in, a, in a futile effort to try and understand with our simple minds what's going on here. Absolutely, yeah, and I, I appreciate your point of view on that because we're in agreement there. And lately I've been kind of – my ire has been a little raised lately by people who sort of just make blanket statements that we know things that we just do not know that I oh, yeah. don't know where they get this information from or where they get this belief from, but there are things that they say we know that we don't know, and that it, it really irks me sometimes, uh, especially lately, it seems. I'm not sure. Might oh, just yeah. be the cold weather. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't stand the cold weather. This may actually be sort of a good segue point here, depending on what you actually offer here for <laughs> for alternative <laughs> explanations, but I did see uh, a post at the Grillian Report and uh, – 
we'll have to get in touch with Leslie and straighten out the the missing UFO magazine blog post uh, that oh, you missing. Yes, that you reference in in the Grayling Report post. But uh, you talk about uh, some alternative explanations that you've put forth for the uh, infamous Travis Walton abduction case, and I'm definitely right. interested in hearing. Uh, your perspective on that and what you think may have been going on if, if it wasn't an abduction, let's say. Well, I think that really when you look at the uh, the evidence and, and you look at the testimony of Travis Walton, which is well documented, it's clear that something happened. Uh, and if you want to take Occam's razor and just say, really, what is most likely? Probably that some sort of UFO craft abducted him. Uh, the weather, there, there were so many issues with, with, you know, with regard to how a person, you know, is, he wasn't scantily clad per se, and although in the film, Fire in the Sky, that was based loosely, I might add, on that uh, incident, although in the film he was dropped back off, you know, in the middle of the rainy uh, weather at a, at a gas station with no clothes, that didn't happen in real life. Travis Walton, I believe, was clothed the entire time, but he was just wearing like a jean jacket and blue jeans. And a, and a T-shirt. He'd been out there working on, on uh, in, you know, in the logging territory, and uh, he, <laughs> you know, it was chilly weather. I believe it was November around the time that the incident occurred. So, if you're going to spend several nights and days wandering delirious in the forest, uh, you know, you're going to you're going to suffer some physical repercussions as a result of that. Yeah. Uh, clearly, he seemed to be in more or less good health. He was shocked and you know badly frightened by whatever had happened to him once they discovered him after. He claimed to have been taken, you know, aboard an alien spacecraft, and uh, he didn't recall being examined. He remembers uh, events leading up to what may have been an examination, and then he remembers waking up by the side of the road and seeing this craft hovering over him and then flying off. But one of the alternative, you know, if, if anything, just to kind of take a different perspective and try and open our minds to different ways we could understand this phenomenon, one of the quote-unquote alternatives that I lended to the uh, discussion was the theory of things like earth lights and plasmas. And uh, there was a book that was written by a fellow named Paul Devereaux. He wrote it with Peter Brooksmith. It's called UFOs and UFOlogy, the first 50 years. And he went into a lot of different uh, interesting parallels between plasma phenomenon, electrical uh, phenomenon, and also electrical inter interference and how certain individuals uh, tend to react uh, you know, unfavorably to electric fields and uh, things like that. As a matter of fact, I, I was invited on an investigation of a property uh, that was not too far, maybe an hour from where I live here in Western North Carolina. And these two ladies lived on this property, and they had such a – one of them at least had such a sensitive, not only to biological agents, things like mold, bacteria, but also to electromagnetic fields produced by televisions, and produced by microwave ovens and things along those lines, that she actually had to live in a house that was completely metal on one side of the building from where all the other electric equipment and devices were because she couldn't sleep at night. She said that electromagnetic fields literally prevented her from being able to sleep at night. Oh, wow. Now, that, yeah. I mean, and, that, and there are many people, there are even people who uh, claim that Wi-Fi, uh, Wi-Fi Internet hotspots in downtown locations and mm -hmm. things like that that they're putting in various U.S. cities now, uh, they say that they feel just down and depressed and they just feel like they, 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 they describe an inability to think clearly when they're in these Wi-Fi hotspots. We don't really know exactly how electromagnetic fields and other kinds of frequencies that are broadcast all around us, how they might actually affect our bodies. I and mean, there are these studies that talk about cell phones creating tumors and things like that. But where I'm going with all this is that, indeed, when you experience a sudden, possibly violent uh, shock 
or some other exposure to intense uh, electromagnetic or just electric energy. Uh, there are studies that show that it can literally cause all different kinds of strange um, hypnotic, psychic-like effects, mm -hmm. psychedelic effects. For instance, one's uh, supposition is that after an intense uh, shock, that some people may actually experience a temporary breakdown of the blood-brain barrier, which keeps substances like, for instance, if you want to get really out there with it, dimethyltryptamine, which we know is produced in the human body. We don't know where, but there's a, a, a scientist named Dr. Rick Strassman who wrote a fascinating book called DMT, the Spirit Molecule, and he believes that dimethyltryptamine, which is a, uh, it's a member of the tryptamine family, it's kind of like tryptophan that we eat in Turkey, except it, uh, it, it's actually got a psychedelic property to it, and it's one of the most powerful uh, psychedelic hallucinogens that we know of. But DMT is produced in the human body. It's just if, if and, and as uh, Strassman says, if it's produced in the pineal gland in our brains, it's not able to make it past the blood-brain barrier into our bloodstream and into the body so that we can have uh, what he calls an endogenous psychic or psychedelic experience. And that would be essentially basically being able to cause a psychedelic experience without having to take any kind of a drug or a yeah. substance. So, that being said, let's imagine, for an instant, that someone like Travis Walton experienced a shock from something along the lines of a plasma, you know, a ball lightning type plasma floating above the ground. If he indeed, and, and the reports actually describe that he ran up under this object, this UFO, and then was struck by a beam and then lifted up off the ground and flew back, and they said that there was a, a, a loud snapping noise as an arc shot towards his chest, and he bounced backwards several feet. And then, of course, his comrades had seen this. They were frightened. They left the scene. So if indeed there was some sort of an electrical shock that occurred, is it possible that there was some sort of a physiological experience that, that, that you know, launched him into some sort of a strange psychedelic, uh, you know, state of mind? We don't know. Now, what's inconsistent with that, and once again, I suppose that just to try and understand exactly what was going on in his mind, what happened to him. But had he just been shocked, and, and if anything, if he had been quote-unquote tripping, if he had had some sort of a psychedelic experience, it's unlikely that he's going to remain unfound in the woods for several days, uh, you know, when they have search parties and teams of people with dogs going out there and looking for him, yeah. as it is documented, actually occurred. And in addition to that, the cold weather that was, uh, you know, in the area at the time, I mean, it's unlikely that he was going to be able to survive, uh, you know, wearing just a jean jacket, you know, not any kind of, you know, uh, actual cover or, or anything to keep him warm there in these forests for so many days. So it's unlikely, really, that that's what happened, that it was an earth flight, that it was a plasma. But here in western North Carolina, there's a similar phenomenon to what I'm describing, ball lightning-type phenomenon, and uh, it's called the Brown Mountain Lights. It's down near Linville, North Carolina. And these Brown Mountain Lights appear, you know, at random times. You never know when they're going to appear, but they certainly do. They're bright, brilliant balls of light that move and, and glide, and even, you know, if they're close enough to human beings, they've been known to interact to a degree with humans around the Linville Gorge area of western North Carolina. And it's fascinating because there was one gentleman years ago who had sent a report to my buddy Joshua Warren, and I actually got that report and included an excerpt of what he described happening to him in the article about Travis Walton, but it's been removed from the website or otherwise uh, taken down, so we'll have to try and get that back up. Um, but the story was essentially that he had had one of these brown mountain lights manifest near him and that he went up to it and he wanted to see what would happen. And he says he moved, you know, close to it. It would kind of move away from him. As he stepped back, it would kind of follow him. It sounds almost as though it were having some sort of an electromagnetic interaction with him. He said at one point he was actually able 
to get close enough to touch the thing, and then when he reached out and did so, it shocked him. So once again, you know, there are parallels. This UFO-like object appears within reach of this man. He touches it, and he gets shocked, and he gets knocked back several feet. You know, it has certain parallels to what occurred with Travis Walton. But then again, the description of the craft that Walton saw was not necessarily a ball of light hovering next to him. I mean, I think that they described it as a craft, as a as some sort of a you know, a, well, a flying saucer, yeah. for lack of a better term. So I don't necessarily think. When when I talk about ball lightning and plasma and things, I don't think that Travis Walton's a liar. I don't think that he's an individual. If anything, that's one of the best documented instances of alleged alien abduction uh, in the history of ufology as far as I'm concerned. But I think that what we can benefit or how we can benefit from supposing other things from time to time is that we can try and you know wrap our minds around different concepts and we might come across, we might stumble across some little clue, some little piece of evidence. Hey, we never thought about that. And it might actually help us take on a greater understanding of the phenomenon as a whole. Absolutely. But in all, in all likelihood, though, in all likelihood, Travis Walton, I believe, probably is the best candidate for being victim of an alien abduction that I can think of. Yeah, and I, and I agree with what you're saying, too. You've you got to sort of put forth these ideas just to, to examine them and to make sure that you're not uh, jumping to the wrong conclusion. You know what I mean? It's, it's important to add as many different possibilities and then, and then dissect them and figure out where you're going with them. To, uh, to try and figure out what really happened. So, well, it's just like playing devil's advocate. You know? Exactly. Exactly. You have to you have to play devil's advocate, even with yourself sometimes, because I think uh, I'm not quoting Sir Arthur Conan Doyle here, but uh, to loosely paraphrase something that he had worded through his most famous character Sherlock Holmes, that in order to find the truth, you have to rule out everything that is undeniably false, and that last little iota, that little that little tiny kernel that you're left with. Once you've ruled out all that cannot be, is the truth. Mm-hmm. I do not, for one, think that the problem was that the band was down. I think that the problem may have been that there was a Stonehenge monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. All right? That tended to understate the hugeness of the object. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Look, see? Still got the, uh, the old tagger on it. See, never even played it. You just bought it. Don't touch it. I, don't well, touch I, I it. Wasn't gonna, I wasn't going to no, touch it. No, don't touch it. I was it. just pointing at it. I... Well, don't point even. Don't it even can't point? Be, no, it can't be played. Never. I mean, I, Can I, I look at no. it? No. No, you've seen don't enough of that it. one. I was really uh, intrigued by a recounting that you have in the blog about uh, an interview that you were part of with former Apollo astronaut Edgar Mitchell, who, of course, made big news this past year. And, and uh, your meeting slash interview took place in 2005. But as many people who are in the know in the world of ufology know, the Edgar Mitchell story about UFOs has been going on for years and years and years. It's not a new story that came out last year, but if you uh, look at the mainstream media coverage, you'd think so. And I just wanted to sort of get your perspective on your meeting with Edgar Mitchell, what that was like, and and sort of uh, I'm sure that uh, there wasn't any serious groundbreaking sort of thing that came out of it just because we would have heard about it by now in a sense, you know. But at the same time, I'm sure it was an amazing experience and something I'm envious of because I would definitely love to interview a former Apollo astronaut, somebody that walked to the moon. We should all be so lucky. Uh, Unfortunately, I didn't meet him in person. Uh, My participation in the interview was actually Joshua Warren. uh, I mentioned he has a radio program called Speaking of Strange, and he booked Dr. Mitchell for the interview on the radio program. And I was the engineer, but of course, you know, I um, anyone who may have listened to Speaking of Strange before, uh, and you can actually there's a website for it, speakingofstrange.com, so you can find out how to listen. 
But uh, if anyone who listens to that program knows that I interact quite a bit with Josh, you know, he and I are both very verbal, uh, although I take the official title of executive producer and engineer of that program. So that being said, uh, my participation in the interview with Dr. Edgar Mitchell was actually uh, basically the fly on the wall. Uh, Josh was asking the questions, although I spoke to him before and after the interview, Dr. Mitchell, that is. And uh, I remember it was such a enigmatic experience because Dr. Mitchell had just had surgery and he wasn't feeling really well, and there was a terrible uh, reception on his telephone line that night, and he uh, he answered the phone, and uh, actually I think a caretaker may have answered the phone or someone else and said, we'll get Dr. Mitchell for you, and then he got on the line, and he asked me how long the interview would be, and I said, yeah, we're planning on doing about 45 minutes. He says, good, because that's as long as I can give you. And it was just an enigmatic experience just because he, he sounded like an alien with this terrible reception we had that night. <laughs> and also the, the sort of things that he was telling Joshua and I uh, that evening. I, me- I, I remember my favorite quote from the evening was that he said that he had been briefed by various individuals from upper echelons of government. And though he'd never seen anything himself, he had been told by uh, people who qualified that indeed we have been visited and we've continued to be visited and that the UFO phenomenon is a valid, real phenomenon. And you hear a former, uh, you know, a former Apollo-era NASA astronaut tell you this, that the UFO phenomenon is a valid and real phenomenon, and that we have been visited and we will continue to be visited. I mean, these are these are the kinds of things that literally you feel your brain opening up. Yeah. You know, you, your 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 brain opens and widens like a satellite dish, and all of a sudden you have you have a momentary lapse into complete one-way streaming. Uh, you know, knowledge from the cosmos. It's the strangest feeling. And what's so funny about that is that Mitchell described a similar experience himself coming back from, uh, I believe he was the fifth man to walk on the moon, and coming back from the moon, he said that he had a sim- uh, an experience similar to what Tom Hanks kind of exemplifies in the film Apollo 13. There's that famous scene where Tom Hanks goes to the window and he sees Earth and he holds his thumb up and he's able to cover the Earth with his thumb and then he Brings his son back down, and there's planet Earth, his home, the island home, floating in the middle of the midst of God knows what here in the cosmos, just floating there. And it's fascinating because Mitchell described that he felt this sudden sense of oneness, a sudden sense of how small he was, and how much more there was in the universe outside of what we know as reality here on Earth. And, you know, to have that kind of a conversation with someone is in itself mystical. I mean that in the literal sense, you know, in terms of a mystic experience. Mitchell referred to it as a mystic experience, and it was nothing short of mystical hearing him talking, you know, talking about this. And um, but if you want to look at it from a nuts and bolts perspective, it's it's always interesting when someone with the kind of uh, a history and experience that Edgar Mitchell has, uh, you know, it's always fascinating when they come out and say, "Yeah, UFOs exist. Aliens have visited Earth." You know, we have regular dealings with them. And when the I believe it was the Kerrang magazine interview was it. Yeah. yeah, that was the interview that came out uh, mid mid year last year, and uh, you know that was the big the big whistleblower. Everybody was saying, "Oh my gosh, NASA astronaut admits to this," and and he even came on several podcasts and radio programs right afterwards and said, "Listen, folks, this got to the media, and and this is this has made a big splash." But I've been saying what I told those folks. Uh, for years, and certainly back in 2005, I was made privy to such knowledge directly from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Uh, you know, it's no big secret that Edgar Mitchell has believed aliens are visiting us for quite some time. Now, that being said, there are many folks from within, um, you know, maybe 
the present NASA uh, organization and, and, and also former colleagues and things like that who have, you know, kind of referred to Edgar Mitchell as, uh, well, he's the odd man out. He's the... He's, the, he's the, the weird one of all the astronauts. I, I never got that impression from Edgar Mitchell. He is nothing but a, uh, a very well-trained, methodical, um, you know, probing individual. Uh, gosh, I guess you should never use a term like probing when you're talking about aliens. <laughs> but, uh, but, but Mitchell was incredibly intelligent, enlightening, if anything. Yeah. And, and to speak to his defense about his interest in UFOs, you know, Buzz Aldrin, and uh, you know, many, even even some of the more uh, the more recent uh, astronauts in the in the space program have talked about seeing UFOs and aliens and unknowns. And if you don't if you don't know a lot you know a lot about that, if you haven't heard about you know other NASA astronaut uh, you know uh, interventions, <laughs> we'll say that occurred while in uh, Earth orbit. You know, you can get on YouTube and you can find videos all day that depict uh, interviews with some of these guys, uh, you know, where they talk about things that they've seen and uh, different kinds of, uh, you know, things that they've witnessed that indicate to them that, indeed, Earth is being visited by some sort of an extraterrestrial intelligence. Absolutely, and that sort of raises the idea that I've had for a while, too, that when this ever-growing private space industry really kicks up and it seems like it's getting bigger and, and growing faster every day, uh, that once the population of people going into space grows, I think this, the UFO secret is going to be harder to keep because uh, too many people are going to be seeing stuff, and hopefully that will be a sea change and a, a new era for UFO research and UFO acknowledgement by the media and the mainstream when we have a more uh, available pool of witnesses to, to stuff like that. Absolutely. You're, you hit the nail on the head right there, and that's just it. It's not going to be a matter of, you know, an angry mob of people going and beating down the door at the CIA or the FBI or at NASA, you know, or the White House for that matter. It's it's, it's not going to be, uh, you know, a, a violent overthrow where people wrestle from these officials, you know, these government documents. Look, see, I told you. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, i got news for you right now. With the release uh, in the last year and in years prior to that, you know, Spanish and French and more, most recently, uh, you know, English, uh, I think former MI6 documents that discussed uh, you know what? What these various uh, you know foreign governments truly knew about UFOs? You know these these documents get uh, declassified and released to the public, and, and they tell us very little other than rough categorizations and classifications of different incidents and different uh, you know stories, basically, which only adds to the accumulating knowledge base that we have. It's so funny because I mean, if anybody. You know, you'd think that the English government, you know, aside from America, of course, you know, you'd think that if anybody would have some real dirt on what's really going on with UFOs, uh, that the U.K. would have that. I'm, I'm sure my buddy Nick Redfern hoped, and if he's listening to this, you know, when, when this uh, podcast airs, you know, I'm sure he's he's laughing along with me because, you know, that information just was not released. And if all of a sudden all American uh, secret documents regarding UFOs were released, I think that the American public, as well as public from other portions of the world, other nations, you know, I think everyone would be a little startled at how little we really know. But what's really going to probably bring this to the forefront is, like you mentioned, uh, the privatization of space exploration uh, you know, and and <laughs> as people are able to afford it, and as it grow, you know, draws you know, glooms on the future right now, on the future horizons. But I mean, as it gets closer to a point where guys like you and I can jump in a in a uh, 
you know, craft and fly into low Earth orbit and, you know, literally hang out there and look at all the debris floating around, all the satellites and anything else that might be buzzing around out there, you know, it's going to get to the point where it's going to be harder to suppress secret information because everything's becoming so much more accessible. Absolutely. And it'll be a whole different style of UFOs that haven't really been uh, addressed, I guess you could say, in the mainstream media as far with the exception of the few and far between stories from astronauts. So it'll be like I said, hopefully a sea change in, in the world of UFOs. But we'll, we'll see what happens, I guess, you know. Uh, who knows? I hope so. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And now the uh, the next story I want to talk to you about that's on the Grillian Report, and uh, sort of I just wanted to get into a little bit of a subsection of this, was uh, you had some great in-depth coverage of the Bigfoot body hoax as it unfolded. Uh, going over it again on your blog was kind of fun to relive that, those uh, exciting few weeks in Esoterica last year. But... Uh, I'm sure you were very disappointed with how it all went down. We don't really need to go over that. I wanted to ask you, though, that you do say that you're friends with Tom Biscardi, and I kind of I don't want to ask you to defend the guy or tell tales <laughs> out of school or anything like that, but he is kind of vilified in the world of cryptozoology and esoterica for a number of uh, promises that have never come through. Uh, I'm not going to assess blame here during the interview because that's really not my place to do, but I just sort of – presume that since you are friends with them, that maybe you see a different side of Tom Biscardi that a lot of people who uh, don't know him and only know of him by name and by action probably don't have. So I guess we'll sort of go in that direction, and I'll just ask you about your friendship with Tom and uh, your take on his role in some of these more notorious Bigfoot incidents. Sure. Uh, you know, I was unaware of Tom Biscardi until while working in radio here in Western North Carolina. Uh, one of our news anchors, a friend of mine named April, <laughs> came running down the hall laughing, and she told me there's this guy who's staying out here in Cherokee. That's about an hour from here in Asheville where I am. And uh, <laughs> she says there's this guy staying out here in Cherokee, and he says that he's hunting Bigfoot, and he wanted to have you know media personnel come out there and, and meet him. And I'm like, what? Let me get this guy's number. <laughs> I'd never heard of Tom, but I called him. And I said, well, you know, I'm interested in this sort of thing, Tom. And, you know, while you're in the area, if I can provide any, you know, amenities or anything like that, you know, you just let me know. And he says, well, I'll tell you what, Micah, one thing that you can provide me with right now is you can just you can come out here tonight and you can see for yourself. Because if anything happens, it's going to be folks like you that I want out here to see this. And I said, oh, well, we'll see. Because it was, I mean, they were calling for snow that night and everything, and Cherokee is, you know, at an elevation here in the Appalachian Mountains that, you know, if it's going to snow, you know, it's going to stick out there. Yeah. Well, so here I was with a friend from the local television news uh, station, and he and I are driving, slip sliding across Soco Mountain, Cherokee, in my little tracker and everything. And thankfully, I had four-wheel drive, you know, on ice that does little... You know, to no extra help, you know, than just a regular two-wheel drive vehicle. And I'm sliding down this mountain, and I finally get over there. But from the instant I met Tom Biscardi, I found him to be a very warm, uh, friendly guy. Um, we talked a lot, and that night in the conversation, it came up in conversation, this incident that occurred on Coast to Coast AM where he had uh, basically, you know, been told he had a, a, a Bigfoot in captivity and that he was going to let, you know, people visit his website and they could watch live as this thing went down and the uh, I asked him about that. I said, you know, well, Tom, what happened? You know, how did that how did that not work out for you? And he said, well, I was duped. And uh, he explained that this this woman had, uh, you know, who had claimed to have had this thing, you know, had basically been in kind of a, uh, you know, a, a, a inconsistent mental capacity, we'll say. And, uh, and <laughs> nice once he arrived, at, he, and he said that once he arrived at the scene, that it was clear that he had been duped, and he realized he had a lot of refunds that he'd have to give to people. 
And, uh, you know, that being said, you know, this was all prior to me knowing Tom. Now, when the Bigfoot hoax went down this past summer, uh, the whole thing smelled funny. Uh, the gentleman from Georgia, uh, you know, all of it, there, there was something that didn't sound right. And the day before the press release in Palo Alto, I called Tom, and I'd seen Tom about a month prior to that because he'd been back to Western North Carolina. I actually drove him to the airport. We, we'd talked, and um, I, I called him on the phone that day before the press release. I said, Tom, what is it? You know, you've got pictures on your website, and you know that everybody's, you know, everybody's being really skeptical right now. What is it? He said, well, it's, uh, you know, it, it looks like, uh, you know, it's not human, but it looks ape-like, you know, and he described various things about it. And I said, well, are you telling me, are you telling me right now that this is real? And uh, he indicated to me, uh, maybe a little vaguely, but he indicated to me that he believed it was real. Uh, the press release went down. I remember corresponding with Mick Redfern, you know, within minutes after the press release aired on CNN. And he said, well, you know, this seemed believable, you know. Um, I don't necessarily have my hopes up, but it seems credible. And I began to think, yeah, you know, after the, the evidence that those two fellows were able to pre present, you know, I was certainly concerned that somebody was going to get duped. I didn't know if it would be Biscardi, if it would be the media, if it was going to be, you know, the, 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 the fellows from Georgia. I didn't know what was going on. It was really difficult to say. And I think at this point it's even still too difficult to say. But it's clear that, you know, we do know that that thing was no Bigfoot. I think most of us suspected that while the press release and prior to the press release was going on, uh, that it was no real Bigfoot, you know, and we, and we saw this before back in the 1960s with the Minnesota Iceman. Now, to me, that seemed like a more uh, realistic uh, interpretation of that same sort of play of events where, you know, you find this hominid, this relic, um, you know, creature, this humanoid half-ape, half-man thing entombed in ice, I remember talking with Brad Steiger one night when he told me about the evening that he got the phone call from Ivan Sanderson. And Ivan Sanderson got him on the phone and said, my boy, I've found it. I've found it, the thing I've searched a lifetime for, proof that Bigfoot does exist. And, and, and Brad said it will change your life when somebody calls you with such definitive clarity in their voice and the excitement and he said you could hear the wind whipping and howling in the background as, as Ivan Sanderson was on the phone with the young Brad Steiger just shouting saying I've got this thing it's captured in ice you know we've taken me and Bernard Quevelmans have taken photographs of this you know this is it and then you know it, it burns in a fire but of course you know they're not without uh, sketchy circumstantial evidence coming about about the origins of the alleged Minnesota Iceman. So, you know, what we had with the Bigfoot hoax this summer was essentially a modern interpretation of that same sort of a, of, of a ruse, you know, basically. And, and I'm not saying that the Minnesota Iceman, for all we know, may have actually been a Bigfoot encased in ice. But once again, what we had there was a, a classic example of some sort of fascinating evidence being brought forth and then mysteriously and somewhat inexplicably disappearing. Um, so I think that as times worn on, we begin to believe less and less. And that's a sad thing. But we believe less and less when we have so many hoaxes and so many, oh, it was within our grasp and then it disappeared. It was burned up in a, in a, in a warehouse fire. You know, that can only happen so much before eventually you're finally going to actually nab the thing. You're going you're gonna to tranquilize Bigfoot in somebody's backyard. You're going to have it. You're going to smell it. I've heard the stories about Bigfoot's scent. And you're going to have it right there, definitive proof. And, you know, it flusters some individuals that we haven't gotten that definitive proof yet. Some of those people were the ones that had high hopes about the Bigfoot hoax this summer. Yeah. Um, but with due respect to all parties, because like I said, and I haven't 
Honestly, I haven't spoken to Tom Biscardi since that incident this summer. However, uh, he's never had a crossword to say to me. Um, you know, and I, um, I just try and basically remove myself from all that. You know, my primary interest is no longer cryptozoology because of the inconsistency of the evidence presented. And, you know, I try to go after things like UFOs and fringe science and things, as you can see on the Grayling Report, that to, to me, uh, you know, where I am in my interest and in my studies now are of a little more interest. But, you know, I'm never going to, I'm never going to, you know, cast somebody aside based on, you know, their interest or what they want to do. And I will say Biscardi has always been a very kind person to me. I've always enjoyed being around him. Uh, I don't know all the ins and the outs of the Bigfoot hoax that took place this summer, but it is an unfortunate uh, series of circumstances that once again gets a lot of people's hopes up and then drops them like a rock. And I try not to set myself up for that kind of a uh, kind of a drop, as I've mentioned earlier. You know, if you go ahead and you you kind of keep a pessimistic, uh, skeptical view of things until it all goes down, then when you do drop, you don't have as far to go. Exactly. Well, that was a fair answer, and uh, I'll just leave it at that. I, I think I probably have somewhat differing opinions on, on Tom, but I, as I said, you know him better than I do, and I only know him of reputation alone, so uh, we'll just leave sure. it at that. Um, better safe than sorry, you know what I mean? <laughs> or as my mom would say, you know, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. That's right. One story that you had here on the blog that really stood out to me, because it's something that's been really interesting me over the last few years and, and sort of been growing in interest um, for me personally, and, then, and it's under the blog post from September, UFOs, Earth's future, man's burden, or simply a dead issue. And you talk about in the blog post how it seems like UFO reports were really popular in the 70s and got more press coverage, and nowadays they don't get as much press coverage. Uh, and you were sort of uh, speculating on that and wondering why that might be, and, and you seem to think that it's because of the 24-hour news cycle and also that just UFOs have sort of lost their buzz that they had in the 70s. So I guess uh, extrapolate a little bit on your thoughts on that, and, and then we'll sort of dive into a little more specialized uh, discussion in that realm. Sure. Uh, the, the simple answer for that uh, is I, I certainly don't believe that, that UFOs uh, are seen any less than they were in the 1970s. But I have so many folks, you know, especially, you know, two, three generations older than me, who say, oh, you're into those UFOs, are you? Yeah. Yeah, you, we used to see a lot of those back when I was your age, you know, but that just doesn't happen anymore. You know, uh, for some reason you just don't hear about them. You used to hear about them all the time. Well, I think that the thing is, is that, if anything, there are more reports of UFOs that occur frequently uh, in the modern era uh, mm -hmm. today. Like, look at, for instance, 2008, look at, uh, you know, the, the numerous uh, accounts of UFO activity, you know, and of course, there were also numerous accounts of, you know, Chinese lantern activity over the UK and Scotland over 2008, and I'm sure this will continue into 2009, but there were many people who were describing all kinds of, you know, bizarre UFOlogical phenomenon over uh, Great Britain. And in fact, those who began to keep count said, you know, this has been a record number this year. And in addition to that, we had probably one of the biggest UFO splashes since Roswell, okay, down in Texas mm -hmm. with Stevensville flap. And that was fascinating stuff. I'd even been shown some photographs, uh, you know, uh, that some of the uh, the folks, Angela Joyner and, uh, and also another that a peace officer had sent to Mobius from that area. Uh, which I posted on the Grayling Report, but there were some fascinating uh, photographs that seemed to depict, you know, something. I, I can't say that there were spaceships or UFOs or government craft, you know, experimental government, government craft. I don't know what they were, but there were certainly various things that came about uh, during 2008 alone that indicated to me that, you know, wow, we were hitting an all-time high. 
Now, that being the case, uh, why is it that some people feel like you don't hear as much about UFOs now as you used to in the 1970s? I mean, look at my good friends Bill and Nancy Burns, who uh, who actually uh, are the publishers of UFO Magazine. And of course, Bill is the star of uh, UFO Hunters on History Channel. Yeah. you got a show called UFO Hunters, and you've got another show that wanted the same name and had to change it because UFO Hunters was taken. There's so many programs on television all the time about UFOs, virtually every day. And if you don't believe me, you can you can do what I do and sign up for a Google alert, okay? Yeah. For the for the key term UFO, and you can have every instance of the word UFO appearing on the web daily in blogs and in news articles sent to your email address. Tell me that UFO is not more popular, and that UFOs and ufology is not more popular in, in interviews, articles, web, radio, television, everywhere, more now than ever before. The reason that people are so blind to it is because of not, you know, when it appears, it's where it appears. Right now, we have so much and so many different facets of what we understand, uh, you know, as media. Media, you know, media started off being the daily paper. And the daily paper was really pretty much relative to your region. Yeah. And then, you know, as, as of course, you know, um, as we began to industrialize and we were able to uh, transfer information, you know, via uh, the, down the wire, so to speak, was the old term, uh, you know, and also via radio broadcast and things like that, you know, we began to be able to report more and more national news. And now you've got newspapers like USA Today, which don't focus on any particular city. And even major newspapers like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, which are, you know, specific to a particular city, they report world news. You know, we have streaming technology and information, you know, at the speed of thought that goes all around us all the time. I've got a BlackBerry. I'm talking to you uh, doing this interview on this BlackBerry right now, and it's going to buzz for an hour after I get off this telephone because I'm going to be catching up on emails that people are probably sending me about UFOs that they've seen, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Uh, and and it's, it's amazing because it's just we have so many different um, elements that disseminate where the news goes and how it goes. And now it's not a matter of turning on the news and watching. It's a matter of turning on what news you want to hear, on what station, from what anchor, from what website. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the thing. And certain websites are going to talk about UFOs more than others. If you go to the Grayling Report, you're not going to find, uh, you know, as much political information. You're going to find UFO news, and you're going to find, you know, pretty much the most up-to-date UFO news. On the other hand, you go to uh, the Drudge Report, and uh, it's going to be a different kind of report altogether. Although I've seen Drudge, Matt Drudge will certainly put uh, UFOs and things on his website from time to time, but it's going to be obviously political. And even that's going to be political information that's slanted, you know, from one side to the other. Uh, so, you know, that, that's the whole thing. There, there's more stuff going on nowadays, at least as much as there always has been. It's reported more than it ever has been, but it's reported in so many different places that people can't keep up with it. All right. That's an interesting point of view. Okay. So I see where you're going with that. But my take on the whole thing and, and your thoughts on that, how it seems like UFOs were a bigger deal in the 70s than today, is that it sort of goes back to something, like I said, that's been interesting me for a while, and that's ufology's public relations problem. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the UFO has a major PR issue. It seems like uh, it's going to take a sea change in, in people's perception of UFOs for any sort of traction for this to gain any ground or, or sort of progress to the next level. Uh, I guess, what do you think about that, that whole issue of, uh, of UFOs having a public relations problem? Because you said earlier that you did sort of work in, in the PR field and you have some PR experience. Well, there's – it's funny because unfortunately – okay, first of all, you're correct. Uh, ufology 
and and you know for that matter anything that you would deem paranormal, unexplained, anything like that, anything out of the, the ordinary, uh, there is a serious problem with representation, or maybe the problem is actually a misrepresentation, because so many uh, so many individuals and groups and organizations have the best intentions. But do you ever hear, I know I come across this quite a bit. As a matter of fact, I've had this expression used with regard, regard to myself. Do you ever hear that term, the crazy UFO people or the crazy Bigfoot people? Oh, yeah. The crazy ghost people? There's a reason why those uh, these groups, and I'm not generalizing myself. Like I said, I've been called both a crazy UFO guy and I've also been compared to Philip Class and a lot of the classic debunkers, you know. Oh, wow. I guess the yeah, I mean, I've had some really mean things said because a lot of people, <laughs> some people are like, Micah, you know, quit talking about all this crazy UFO crap, drop it. And then the others, 50, you know, the other 50%, you know, they're like, you know, you just don't believe enough. Why can't why can't you open your heart and why can't you believe? That sounds like my critics here. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's just it. It's, it's not that I disbelieve. It's not that I, uh, you know, that I do believe. It's just that, you know, that if you're going to be rational, and try and understand phenomenon that we truly, as humans, know so little about. There is no point. There is no reason to to, to 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 you know limit yourself to one perspective. And I know that a lot of people are like, no, you're just being wishy-washy. You know, you're just not man enough to to say I do believe or I don't. You know, pick one or the other. But why does there have to be so much gray area? Or rather, why do we have to be black or white? Why can't there be gray area from time to time? I think that the problem with ufology is that there are always two schools, the people who are saying, no, it isn't, and the folks who are saying, yes, it is. Can't we get, uh, you know, an organization or an individual, or you know, preferably a group of in individuals, you know, strength in numbers, uh, who are willing to be bold enough to represent the possibility? They're not going to go and say, we know that there are UFOs, and we want evidence, we want proof, we want it all right now, give it, you know. We also don't want people who are going to say, now, you guys are crazy, and we know that there's nothing, so drop it. You know, we need people who are going to say, listen, we're open to the possibility. We're willing to dress nice, present ourselves logically and rationally, and and be accepting of whatever the answer is, but we just want the truth. We want the answer. Yeah. And I think that when it comes to ufology specifically and public relations, that's the problem is that people have such diametric opposition. They're on one side or the other. They need, you know, people need to open their minds truly and, and look at, hey, we don't know what's going on. Now, how can we best represent ourselves in a way that will lead to ultimate understanding or discovery of that truth, that heavenly glory, as Bruce Lee said, you know, what, what is it that we're looking for? We really don't know. And until we understand the right way to go about trying to achieve that goal, finding out and learning and understanding, then we'll, we'll never be viewed, you know, we being the people who do advocate some sort of uh, a view with regard to phenomenon, we will never be taken seriously. Yeah, well, I've been reading Firestorm uh, by Ann Druffle this past uh, week, so I think I have the James McDonald years on my mind uh, <laughs> lately, and I definitely think that since uh, the early 70s, ufology sort of completely went off the promising track it had been on with the Condon Report and with the dissolving of NICAP and then the death of James McDonald, I think, uh, those three events, and then it just seems like it all went downhill from there. And uh, yeah. we, we sort of need uh, – we need – we need a, a sea change in, in the way ufology is represented and handled, I think, before uh, we're going to see any progress. And I'm not talking about, you know, weeding out the hoaxers and the debunkers, because that's just not even, that's not something that can be done, in my opinion. So it's more of an, an issue of uh, finding the right people to represent the field and, and 
representing ufology in the right way. Uh-huh. And, and in a way that you said, that sort of uh, says we don't know, which is kind of what I was saying earlier about how it's been raising my ire lately. We just need people that say, listen, we don't know, but there's something here that needs to be looked at. And, you know, sort of push that as the issue instead of being like, uh, we know this is the case and we want the answer, kind of like what, what you were saying. And that kind of segues actually into another area that is within the realm of what we're talking about here that is discussed on the Grillian Report quite a bit, and that's the president's in disclosure. And then I, I kind of want to, to piggyback onto that, that, that at the Grillian Report, the subtitle of the website is Weird News, Anomalies, and Exopolitics from Beyond the Fringe. And I found that kind of interesting and a bit surprising because you don't strike me as the typical exopol, and we haven't seen you mixed up with the with the exopolitical crew. So uh, I found it kind of cool that uh, that you're not running from the the term exopolitics, even though it's sort of been adopted uh, by one school of, of thought in the UFO world and sort of uh, has become their banner. Sort of like the idea of SETI has become, you know, the oh, SETI yeah. folks have taken SETI and uh, the term SETI and and uh, you know they own it now almost. And the exopolitics term is kind of the same way with the with the exopolitical movement. Uh, you know, the big disclosure folks who are pushing for that kind of stuff, million facts stuff. Uh-huh. So I was surprised to see exopolitics mentioned on the Grillian Report as, as one of the tenets of your blog. So I guess let's sort of just dive into the idea of exopolitics and your research into presidents and disclosure and, and what you think the possibility of how much uh, the president really has to say about UFOs. Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, to take the conversation in this direction, first, uh, it's good to, to define what we're talking about, okay? And according to exopolitics.org, exopolitics is the study of the key individuals, political institutions, and processes associated with extraterrestrial life. Now, that being said, when I refer to exopolitics on the Grayling Report, and yeah, it's up there in the header, I'm certainly not talking about, you know, trying to you know, um, align myself with certain individuals or with certain ways of thought. As you can probably tell from this uh, this uh, interview, I mean, I, I certainly have my own perceptions of things. If you want to get together and smoke a cigar and, and talk about that and off the cuff, we can do that. But now, when it comes to actually reporting, uh, you have to you have to keep in mind the old uh, the old expression fair and balanced. <laughs> I think Fox News, Fox News uses that these days, and a lot of people you know criticize them for saying that, and then sometimes appearing not to do that. Now I'm not gonna I'm not talking about political affiliation here. I'm saying that no matter what news source you are, everyone shows a little bias. I do also, but I try when I'm reporting not to show. Uh, you know, pure, flat-out bias. Now, what's funny about that is as a blogger, you know, that's what people find appealing uh, when you do show bias, when you do give an opinion. Yeah. But all that all that aside, when it comes to exopolitics, I'm not interested in adopting people's opinions and views. I'm talking specifically about individuals and, you know, sometimes in a very literal sense, politicians, you know, uh, who involve themselves in ufology. And there are many of them. Uh, my good buddy Jim Mars, uh, in his book, Rule by Secrecy, uh, opens up talking about how allegedly <laughs> when Bill Clinton, uh, he, he wasn't in office. I think he was, he, well, he may have been right after he was elected, but I seem to think that it was just prior to his election. He had told Webb Hubble he was going to appoint him to trying to find out two things for him, and that was who killed JFK and are UFOs real? And then uh, I think his chief of staff was John Podesta at the time, and uh, Podesta, they said, had also been one that would just you know, call up the CIA and say, what's going on out there at, you know, at Area 51? I want to know what's going on. There have been many individuals 
who were, uh, you know, instrumental in the Clinton administration, who were pushing for disclosure. Lawrence Rockefeller also uh, had at least one, maybe several, uh, private meetings with Bill and Hillary Clinton, where he had asked them, essentially, to go, you know, and try and find and try and gain access, you know, using their political uh, stance. Uh, to try and get information about UFOs. And it's not because, you know, he was some sort of a, well, I guess actually Lawrence Rockefeller, as the name implies, he was certainly a wealthy millionaire, uh, probably more than that. But he, he was a wealthy uh, individual who later in his life had taken a personal interest in UFOs. And um, I think that what, what a lot of people aren't aware of is that many past presidents have done the same. Uh, I don't think that that's exopolitics according to the uh, the definition that I gave just a few moments ago, but it certainly is something that you could call exopolitics. Um, the fact that indeed there are political organizations and ideologies that affect what is released and what is not released and what we're allowed to know, what we're able to know. And, uh, and in some instances, you know, what we, uh, what we're able to, uh, I mean, what, what we, what we make available to ourselves, uh, suppression occurs constantly on these, uh, along these lines. And whether it be from the government or just from people, you know, religious institutions who say, you know, we're going to keep our minds closed to that because that's not what we believe. You know, it's all quote unquote politics. And when you talk about exopolitics, there's plenty of it that surrounds ufology and alien, uh, you know, uh, visitation and abduction and all these different things. So that being said, uh, you know, it's a frequent topic that I address in the Grayling Report that indeed many past presidents have involved themselves in with a degree of interest uh, in the pursuit of uh, UFO disclosure. Jimmy Carter went to the CIA, and I believe at the time that uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was actually director, and he was, uh, Jimmy Carter was told, you know, after, you know, asking and inquiring officially about UFOs and documents regarding UFOs, he was told, hey, you don't have clearance for that. And if the President of the United States does not have clearance, okay, to receive and read over and understand, uh, you know, documents regarding UFOs and ufology, who the heck does? Yeah. You know, Ronald Reagan, he uh, described chasing a UFO when he was governor of California prior to his presidency uh, in his private jet one night. And he told the pilot, chase that thing. And it zigzagged throughout the sky and then finally took off at such a speed that, that they couldn't uh, that they couldn't follow it any longer. And he, you know, got off the plane and told his wife all about it. Um, Gerald Ford before him had actually, uh, you know, gone before Congress and had said, you know, we need to push for disclosure because he was a uh, – uh, you know, uh, he was talking on behalf of you know his constituents in the state of Michigan. He had mm-hmm. said, you know, I want, uh, I don't want to disclose and discount what people in the state of Michigan are describing and experiencing. And the famous swamp gas explanation or star, it was, it was the planet Venus, yeah. had been given for a very widely reported UFO seen uh, in the skies over the state of Michigan around that time. And Gerald Ford kind of went to bat about that and said, you know, we need to get in touch with the Air Force. We need to get in touch with all these, you know, these military bodies, and we need to look at this this phenomenon seriously. Now, what's funny is after being elected to president, Gerald Ford, uh, you know, many will note, didn't show as as much interest in ufology afterward. And there could be many reasons why. Uh, George Bush, our, our present president, uh, hasn't, uh, I guess most people know that, but by the time this airs, uh, it could be Obama, depending on when this uh, this interview actually goes up onto the podcast. But either way, uh, George Bush uh, 
actually George W. Bush had, you know, hasn't shown very much interest in this sort of thing at all. Uh, I don't recall George Herbert Walker Bush doing so publicly, but I know that he denied information to uh, uh, Jimmy Carter. So, you know, there's there's a bit of a tie there. And so the question on everybody's minds right now, and the, the web, and I'm sure, Tim, you've seen this, the web has been just buzzing with this, is, Will 2009 be the year, and is Obama going to be the guy that discloses UFO uh, information? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and if you if you watch the debates in the early primaries, the Democratic primaries, uh, you know when they asked, they, everyone was having a great time asking Dennis Kucinich about the alien uh, spaceship that he'd seen that Shirley MacLaine talked about in her book, mm-hmm. and, um, and then they also tried to have a, a you know a media hayride with uh, oh gosh, what was the uh, the New Mexico governor uh, Bill Richardson? Bill Richardson, yeah. He was talking about wanting to, you know, try and get to the bottom of Roswell. And he said, well, you know, this is an, an interesting aspect of history. I'm not saying that there are aliens, but if there's some sort of government secrecy about this, it needs to, we need to open up and we need to know it's been long enough. We need to know what really happened. Yeah. Uh, people love tearing into him about that. And when it came back around to Obama, they asked Obama on one occasion, do you believe in alien life? And he said, well, I think that there's a possibility, but it's more interesting and important right now that we focus on you know, human life here on this planet. So he kind of dodged the question, as was probably best suited for the uh, circumstance. Yeah, it worked out well for him. <laughs> it worked, yeah, extraordinarily well. So I don't, I don't know, but if that's any indication of, of Obama's stance towards alien life and ufology, uh, it might be an indication that no, 2009 will not be the year. But by the same token, there are so many other political factors, uh, or in this instance, exopolitical factors that are kind of. Uh, you know, becoming involved in this whole mess, which would include uh, Gary McKinnon, the UFO hacker, mm-hmm. and whether or not he's going to be extradited to the United States. There's an article that I actually just posted uh, uh, today on the Grayling Report talking about a new turn of events with regard to that. Uh, you know, there are so many different factors that, uh, that may, uh, I don't know if it's going to lead to ultimate disclosure, but they may certainly influence, uh, you know, accessibility to information we haven't had previously. 2009 may be a big year for us. But I don't know how much uh, President Obama is going to actually uh, influence that. Yeah, it seems like based on past history that it's really sort of uh, something that's out of the president's hands based on what we know from what sort of information they get. And since no one's really – since none of the previous presidents have really done anything in, in a positive regard as far as uh, putting out any UFO information. And then I sort of agree <laughs> with Obama's uh, debate statement there. Uh, now, we were kind of talking about this on the year in review episode, too, that, you know, given the state of affairs in the country right now, as much as I'm interested in UFOs and as much as I would appreciate and enjoy, probably, uh, UFO disclosure, uh, I'd much rather see them fix the economy and get the troops out of Iraq right now than, than uh, just roll out a bunch of UFO information that's not going to help us really solve any problems right now. Because based on the information we've gotten out of some of these other countries, it's just a bunch of sighting reports and no analysis or anything, and we're just left with tons of information that doesn't help us at all. So if they're pushing for that kind of thing, uh, I'd rather they just fix the economy. That's my well, take on it. <laughs> well, and I, Tim, I'm right there with you. I, I hate to sound... Uh, Close-minded, you know, but uh, but honestly, if if we don't survive, uh, you know, a a continually uh, worsening situation economically in this country and elsewhere, uh, and we don't survive long enough to be able to uh, exist in the future when UFO disclosure might be feasible, uh, it's not going to be any good to us, you know. Exactly. If we're and, and you know, and if you're into the the mystic traditions and the the notion of the afterlife, then you know. Maybe uh, there, and from that point, we'll know all. We'll see everything. We'll you know, we'll be 
kindred spirits with the Space Brothers, you know. But until that time, uh, while I'm here on Earth, I'm going to maintain interest, but I'm going to take care of matters at hand first and foremost. And I'd like to be able to afford to drive my car, <laughs> you know. And Absolutely. I'd like to be able to afford to live. So, you know, you, you have to be rational. And that's the thing that we forget sometimes when it comes to parental studies and, and, and phenomenological things. Uh, you know, any kind of research like this, unfortunately, must come second to survival. So I have uh, <laughs> I have high hopes, high hopes for 2009 like anyone else, but... Uh, those hopes, uh, you know, certainly don't. Uh, you, you're not going to find UFO disclosure at the top of that list, I'm afraid. So. Absolutely, yeah, we're in absolute agreement on that for sure. Uh, the last big point I want to talk to you about is something actually that when we first started setting up the interview was something that you pointed out as one of your favorite topics, and uh, I dug up here on the blog for further research when I was getting ready to do the interview, and that's sort of this mysterious underwater phenomenon known as the bloop, which I had never heard of before, but something that you've kind of dug into and posted a lot of information about at the Grillian Report. So I guess enlighten people to what is the bloop and sort of like the story behind it and, you know, how it sort of ties into urban legends and, and literature of the past and stuff like that. Come on, everybody knows that bloop is Cthulhu, okay? <laughs> <laughs> bloop, what, what bloop refers to, it's actually a name, uh, bloop or the bloop sometimes. Uh, it was a name given to an ultra-low frequency underwater sound detected by NOAA, National Oceanic, Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Uh, they, they recorded this sound or similar sounds to it several times uh, back in the summer of 1997, and they weren't sure exactly what created the sound. They knew that it, that it uh, the sound, you know, acoustically traced from somewhere around 50 degrees south, 100 degrees west, latitudinally and longitudinally now. What's interesting about that coordinate is that's very similar to the sunken dead city of Raleigh, um, which was featured in the story by H.P. Lovecraft, The Call of Cthulhu. And incidentally, Cthulhu was a great big, gigantic, uh, you know, anthropomorphic alien entity. Uh, not really an evil entity, but certainly kind of, uh, um, what's the term, kind of uh, apathetic toward humanity. Yeah. And uh, this, this creature at the climax of the story rises from this, from this tomb beneath this sunken city. And, uh, and begins to wreak havoc on mankind. But, uh, you know, what, what, what's bizarre about bringing into the picture here, you know, fictional accounts of a giant monster uh, at that latitude and longitude, which incidentally is virtually furthest from land that you can get at any point in the Pacific Ocean, which oh, wow. is why I titled, I titled the article Furthest from Land and Down uh, for that very reason. But, uh, indeed... There uh, were many acoustics experts who listened to the bloop sound recorded by NOAA, and they said that this, this, this sound bore all the acoustic hallmarks of a large creature, most likely a mammal, but that this thing would have been so large to have been recorded by, and actually it was recorded by what was called the Equatorial Pacific Ocean Autonomous Hydrophone Array. Wow. That's quite a mouthful. Yeah, yeah. quite a mouthful. But, but what that uh, referred to specifically were a group of um, deep-sea moored hydrophones that were actually, they were put down uh, on the uh, off the coast of the Pacific Ocean, or rather off the coast of uh, the uh, western side of the United States there in the Pacific Ocean. Um, they were placed back during the Cold War era and uh, were used with the intention of monitoring submarine activity during the Cold War. Uh, so after the Cold War, NOAA decided that they would try and make uh, you know better use of these things to monitor seismic activity and all different kinds of things you know beneath the Earth and what's or not the Earth but beneath the Earth's oceans mm -hmm. in what's called the deep sound channel at that specific depth um, acoustically 
um, acoustic vibration sounds and things can carry for miles and miles, hundreds of miles, uh, due to a natural compression that occurs in that uh, so-named deep sound channel. So that's how they were able to, off the coast of you know, the Pacific Northwest, use a hydrophone array from the Cold War era and record a sound from way down in the southwest Pacific Ocean. But whatever this thing was, they said, bore the acoustic hallmarks of something kind of whale-like. But they said that whatever it was was so large based on the acoustic signature that it would have been big enough to swallow a blue whale. Wow. Now, what in the world, or what not of this world, <laughs> could be so large that it could swallow a blue whale? And people said, well, giant squid maybe, something like that. Well, giant squid, you know, so far as uh, their their actual um, you know biology aren't, aren't supposed to get much bigger than known species of whales uh, relatively, you know, it's kind of difficult to compare, you know, compare a, a whale and, a, and, a, and a, a squid, but either way, they also don't have an air-filled sac, and they don't have lungs that they can use to be able to emit such sounds like a whale does. So you can rule out cephalopods and squids and things along those lines. So then you're left with, well, what what was it? You know, what what could be that large? And there have been so many theories. People have put out, you know, notions regarding uh, deep sea alien bases and all kinds of things. But uh, what's funny about that is that the suppositions that surround the notion of what could have actually made the bloop noise. Um, and, and if you want to hear the bloop noise, by the way, you can actually go to Wikipedia and just type in bloop, and it'll take you to a link where you can you can actually hear the sound that that created the legend. But bloop. Um, has figured into all kinds of pop culture and things like that. It's been used in video games, films, and uh, in part of the viral marketing campaign for the film Cloverfield, uh, there was a website that was called slusho.jp, I think, and it was a Japanese website that was advertising this product called Slusho. And at one uh, particular page on the website, you were able to uh, go to a – and I know this because my brother Caleb, uh, who's also interested in the paranormal and all kinds of uh, – uh, you know, 4 phenomenon, Caleb had been very interested in uh, the Cloverfield and the viral marketing campaign that they were that they were you know, using to build hype prior to the film. And he'd show me this slow show website at one point. We were on there looking at it one night, and suddenly in this little array of characters that run up and would, like, say little things that would appear in speech bubbles, all of a sudden one of the words that came up was bloop. And I said, now that's got to be more than a coincidence. And, of course, the premise of the film Cloverfield was that, indeed, a large uh, unknown creature, uh, as of yet unknown creature, emerges from the ocean and destroys New York. And, uh, indeed, I think that the part of the inspiration for that creature might have actually been Bloop and the notion that, indeed, there could be some sort of a gigantic monstrosity out there somewhere beneath Earth's oceans. Uh, but, you know, like I said, this isn't something that, you know, that you're, that you're hearing about, you know, from some X-Files website or something along those lines. I mean, Noah actually has a page dedicated to this on their homepage, noaa.org, that's N-O-A-A.org, and um, you can learn all about Bloop by visiting that, or just, as I said, searching for Bloop on wikipedia.com. Now, was the Bloop recording, was that a one-time-only event, or is that like a recurring sort of thing? Have they ever gotten a second Bloop, or, or what? They never got anything quite like Bloop. They got other different, it's funny because they find these strange noises, different names. Bloop was named such because of the, 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 the sound that it made. Yeah. And in order for it to be audible, they said that they had to speed it up, I think they said 16 times. And after being sped up 16 times, it just had kind of a bloop noise <laughs> to it. But there was, a, a, uh, there was a, gosh, another sound that was recorded during that summer in 1997 called uh, Gregorian Chant. There was another that was called Slow Down. Uh, there were various names that were assigned to these different uh, different noises. As I, as I understand, many of the different noises 
were indicative of other kinds of phenomena. Some of most of these that got names and that are in the pop, you know, culture surrounding this uh, this bloop noise uh, were unidentified, and that's why they have become so popular. But bloop was the one that they said had the acoustic hallmark of a large, possibly a mammal, but nonetheless a large creature of some sort. And, uh, and and so large indeed that it might be capable of swallowing a blue whale. I just uh, I shudder at the thought of what that might be. Yeah, that is spooky. And uh, much like your your fear of the underground and subterranean monsters, I do have a my own personal fears, sort of that uh, open water scenario. So, yeah. Uh, it kind of touches a nerve with me. We're heading up here against the clock, so uh, we'll sort of head towards the close here. And, and I know people can find out way more about you and your writings and your research at the Grillian Report blog, and the the URL for that is simply GrailianReport.com. You don't need the the. And now let me spell that for folks. G-R-A-L-I-E-N Report.com, all one word. And of course, we'll have plenty of linkage up in all of America for people to check out how to get a hold of the Grailian Report. But what's going on for you here in 2009? It's pretty early in the year. I'm sure you have some big plans and hopes and dreams for the new year. So uh, what can we expect from Micah Hanks? in 09 and beyond. Well, I hope to travel quite a bit. And uh, you know what's fascinating? This would be really fun. Uh, when you get out in the field, it's, it's always neat to meet people uh, when, you're, when you're going and you're traveling. And I have to say uh, that my good friend Joshua Warren is putting together a paranormal cruise that's themed towards 2012. It's going to be going uh, about, I guess, it's probably the first weekend in May uh, that they're going to be uh, launching, heading to places like... Uh, well, I think Cozumel, and uh, and and uh, I think that they're going to go to uh, Honduras at one point, and, and go to a lot of the the locations where pyramids and a lot of the culture associated with 2012, you know, the end of the Mayan calendar, and all these things uh, are known to exist. And I hope to join Joshua on that cruise. And as a matter of fact, here soon I'm going to be hooking up a link to the website. On the Grayleyan Report, and I encourage anyone listening, if you're interested in going on that cruise, you know, uh, we might be able to hang out and talk about some of this crazy stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, if you if you check it out, you could actually go to paranormalcruise.com right now and learn more. And if you sign up, tell them you heard about it from Micah Hanks and the Grayleyan Report because I'm certainly interested in, in tagging along with them on that as well, and, and that would be something fun. But in addition to that, um, you know, you never know where the roads are going to take you. Uh, that, that's one good excuse to get out and travel right there, a paranormal cruise. But uh, you never know. I mean, there are big, Bigfoot expeditions and all kinds of things. And as you've seen probably, Tim, from reading my website, I've traveled around the United States quite a bit doing various uh, research and, and whatnot. And I never start one year thinking by the end of this year or by this time next year I will have been all these places. And so I certainly hope that I get out and travel. But uh, aside from that, uh, 2009, I hope we'll also see more traffic at the Grayling Report. And I, I always invite people who are readers of the website to uh, to send me their news and their stories and things. And you can always reach me via email at info at com. There you go. All right, folks, check it out, GrailianReport.com, G-R-A-L-I-E-N, report.com. Definitely someplace you want to be stopping at every day to find out what Micah has posted at the blog. Very fascinating website. I enjoy visiting it, as I said, every day to check out what he's what he's posting. Well, Micah, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, giving us so much extra time. I appreciate that. We had you slated for an hour. We ended up going two because you just have so much areas to cover here as far as what you've looked into and what you've researched and uh, posted about at the Grillian Report. Um, as I said, I definitely feel like you're one of the fastest rising stars in the esoteric world right now. I think a lot of people are going to be finding out more and more about Micah Hanks. They're going to be reading more of your stuff. 
as time goes on. And I think uh, I'm looking forward to seeing and watching your star rise in the esoteric world over the next few years. Uh, you just have an infectious interest in this world of the esoteric that I find refreshing and fun to be around. Just doing the interview, I, I really just enjoyed sort of, uh, you know, uh, setting you up and then watching you spike these answers down and sort of enjoying listening to you delve into these topics. I've enjoyed it so much uh, talking to you, and I look forward to future conversations with you, and I wish you the best of luck with the Grillian Report and your travels and your research into the world of the esoteric. I'm going to be keeping my eye on Micah A. Hanks, and I hope all of the BOA Audio listeners do as well. Thanks again for coming on the show, Micah. You're so welcome, and anytime, please. It's my pleasure. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 4. Big, big, super huge thanks to Micah A. Hanks for coming on the show and giving us so much time. You can find out more from Micah at the website www.gralianreport.com, G-R-A-L-I-E-N, report.com. Check it out. Keep an eye on Micah Hanks, my friends. You're going to be hearing a lot more about him and from him in the future. Trust me, he is a breakout star in the world of esoterica. Up next, of course, is BOA Audio listener feedback. We're going to do just one email here this week because we're pressed for time. And it's kind of a lengthy one, but I definitely want to read the whole thing. And it comes from one of our international listeners. As always, they leap to the top of the BOA Audio listener feedback mailbag when we receive an email from an international listener. And this time around, our correspondence comes all the way from Stockholm, Sweden. Pretty amazing stuff here. From a man by the name of Claus Hager. Here's what he has to say. The work you're doing is outstanding, and the shows are always one of the highlights of the week. Started listening half a year ago because I had my ears free and was very understimulated at work. I started listening to podcasts, and one day I stumbled upon Banal of America. You can imagine my joy as soon as I realized I had nearly four seasons of BOA material to kill the endless office days with. Your show sparked my faded interest of the esoteric, and I have now started engaging in Sweden's UFO organization. Because I'm only 20 years old, and I've heard you mention that young people need to engage in the esoteric, I hope one of your many goals with the audio show has been reached, at least by one kid in Sweden. Believe it or not, Sweden has several interesting cases, in particular the 60-year-old Gosta Carlson case, where a man had a close encounter with some human-like beings in the forest, where they apparently had landed with their disc. He was visited by them a couple times later on, and also got a couple of plastic mugs with some kind of liquid in them. There was also another particular case where a big light, seen by many, floated over a small town in Sweden. One of the leading ufologists claimed that it was a mothership, and that it also let out several small ships, one of them apparently meaning to land in the heart of the city. He also claims that some of the International Security Service silenced everything. The case may seem loony, but it has interesting components if you look at the details. Please keep on with your excellent work, and expect a donation from me as well. If you ever decide to come to Sweden, be sure to let me know. As other listeners have pointed out, it would be super cool to have a few beers with you and talk everything esoteric. Best regards, Claus Hager in Stockholm, Sweden. There you have it. Thank you so much for writing in, Claus. It completely blows my mind that we have listeners all the way in Sweden, and I am just humbled that you enjoy the program so much that you've dug into all four seasons and that we, as you say, sparked your faded interest in the esoteric. I just am blown away by that and humbled beyond words that we've had that kind of effect 
yes, we've been preaching for more young people in esoterica. Frighteningly enough, I'm really not that young anymore, but I definitely feel like the young people in the world of the esoteric are starting to have their voices heard more and more, and maybe BOA Audio had a little bit to do with that. I'm not going to pat myself on the back and say that we had a lot to do with it, but maybe we sort of greased the wheels a little bit for some folks to get involved and start researching more of the esoteric. I'm definitely going to have to reach out to Claus again here because I want to find out about this Swedish UFO organization. I smell a future BOA Audio interview in the works here. If we can do a Swedish ufology episode, this Gosta Carlson case and then this Mothership case both sound fascinating and it definitely sounds like there is a thriving UFO world going on over there in Sweden that I would love to hear more about. So please get in touch with me, Claus. I'll shoot you an email anyway if you somehow manage to miss the end of the program here where we read your email. And uh, to all the great listeners out there throughout the world, send us an email if you want. International listeners go to the top of the list. Thank you so much again, Claus, for the donation. That's hugely appreciated. It will definitely help us out here as we struggle through tax season here in America. And stay tuned to BOA Audio. We've got tons of great episodes in the pipeline. And thank you so much for your kind words and the props for the program. It's just humbling to hear from people around the world like Claus who are enjoying the show. And uh, it just is just stunning to me that this program has such an amazing global reach. I'm almost at a loss for words here after that email, but I will do the requisite methodologies for reaching me to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback. Here's how you do it. You either go to Banal of America and click the contact button, or you just fire up your email machine and you punch in boaaudio at hotmail.com. And then the third way is a little more interactive. It is the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. We got threads there for all the different episodes. You can pop on and say, hey, I like this episode. I didn't like this episode. Why don't you get this guy for a guest? Say whatever you want. Come on the forum. Share your thoughts. We'd love to have you there. It's a great community of people, and we're always welcoming to newcomers who join the forum. Those are the three methods, the usofe.com, the email, or the contact button. Any of those methods will put your correspondence into my hands for a future edition of BOA Audio Listener Feedback. Time now, of course, for the credits portion of the show. You know them, you love them. They are the infamous and esteemed BOA staff. Let's roll through the list here. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Paul Black, and Lasha Siniuk. They are just amazing folks. They are my support structure. They are the gears of Been All of America, pumping out top-notch reading material and thought-provoking columns for the BOA franchise, Monday through Friday. Check those out, as we say all the time here on the program. If you're only listening to BOA audio and you're not reading the columns, you're only getting half the story. These folks cover a plethora of different esoteric genres, many different stories, and angles that we just don't have a chance to get to here on the program are covered in the columns by the BOA staff. BenAllOfAmerica.com. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. As I alluded to just now in BOA Audio listener feedback, it is tax season here in America, and as usual, I am being crushed 
by the federal government and paying a hefty bit of taxes here on April 15th. So, of course, I ask you folks to help out and toss some change in the bucket, throw a bill or two into the hat, and help BOA stay up and running and freely available for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. As we've been saying throughout Season 4, the economic crisis is crippling many people. I don't want those folks to have to feel compelled to make donations when they just simply can't do it. They're barely getting by month to month. I feel your pain. I don't want your donations. What I want to be is your free entertainment throughout this crisis and to hopefully take your mind off of the day-to-day financial worries that many people are struggling with. I don't want those folks to make donations, but there are some folks who are doing pretty good. They're hanging in there. They're secure. They've got good jobs, and we turn to those folks to make donations. We need you now to help out for all the people here who can't make donations and want to because times are tough. How do you do that? Come on now, you should know by now. It's pretty simple. You go to Banal of America and you click the PayPal button. Those good folks at PayPal will walk you through the process. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio. This is episode 21. We got 10 more for you here cooking in season 4, and then we're going to blow your mind with season 5. Trust me, my friends. So if you can make a donation and help us stay on secure footing, it would be greatly appreciated. Next week on the program, we have an absolutely riveting edition of BOA Audio for you. Originally, we were going to take our annual spring break, but we're going to push the spring break ahead by one week because I had sort of a weird light bulb go off in my head, and I really wanted to do this episode coming up next week. Our guest is William K. Zabel. He is the man behind the website ColumbineConspiracy.com. He's going to be joining us to mark the 10th anniversary of the Columbine School shooting. He's been researching this infamous event for the last decade, and he believes there's more to the story than what the mainstream media is telling us. He's going to detail his findings and his theories on what really happened in Colorado on April 20th, 1999. Were there more than two shooters? Was there government involvement? Was there a cover-up? mind control, or some kind of paranormal influence. We're going to examine all these possibilities in a truly thought-provoking and at times revelatory interview, which may have you looking at the Columbine school shooting in a whole new light. I've always been fascinated by the Columbine shooting. I've always found it a little bit weird, a little bit off, something fishy about it, never quite sat right with me. And so when I saw that the 10th anniversary of the Columbine school shooting was coming up, I went on an all-points bulletin search for an esoteric researcher who could speak to the Columbine school shooting and the possibility of a conspiracy. I always found the potential lost suspects, third, fourth, fifth shooter concept to be particularly intriguing. And so I wanted to go in that direction and do a little conspiracy element. And then bada-boom, bada-bing, I stumble upon ColumbineConspiracy.com. Had to really beat the street to find William Zabel. Very difficult guy to get a hold of, but we found him. And we taped an interview last week. It's ultra fresh. It's going to be two hours all about the Columbine school shooting. Was there a conspiracy? William Zabel believes there was, and you just might too after you hear what he has to say. That's next week on BOA Audio. Be there or be square, an absolute can't-miss edition of the program. Hopefully, y'all come back to check that one out. 
And on that note, we close the book here on another edition of BOA Audio. Big, big thanks once again to Micah A. Hanks for coming on the show. Check out his stuff at GrelianReport.com. And as always, super huge thanks to all of the great BOA Audio listeners. You are the fuel that drives the BOA machine. This program would be nothing without its listeners. Believe me, I know that better than anybody. And I thank you once again for making us a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Banal, signing off.